Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. We appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening in today. For those who will enjoy the archives, thank you so much for listening to to today's show. Today we are in the last installment of the White Identity Politics Show, and it was supposed to be last week, but it was so much that, you know, I wanted to add on that we decided to go ahead and do a part B. I guess last week was part A, and this is part B. So it's been a lot happening, and thank you. I'm looking at my numbers, and like I said, we've grown, have more listeners now, and so, you know, I appreciate it, appreciate you guys. And so it's been a lot happening um, this week. In the news, um, I'm sure you all heard um, what happened in Ohio with Tamir Rice and, you know, definitely sending out, you know, some positive thoughts, if you will, to his mother and his family because I can, you know, I can't even begin to imagine um, what they're going through, you know, what's happening with them. So, you know, definitely wishing them the absolute best. And, you know, it's just, it's it's been, you know, hard for a lot of, you know, black families. And not only black families, we've had this issue with Latino families, indigenous families, you know, Asian families. I'm pretty sure they've experienced, you know, some of this. I think I've seen a couple of stories. And, you know, I've seen some poor whites that, you know, they've been, you know, having some of the same issues. So, again, like I said, um, my condolences, because it can't be easy. There's no way that that can be easy for any of these families. And then basically, you know, when when the information comes back, it, the jury, you know, the grand jury that was convened, when they, you know, automatically say that the police were not at fault. And it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how much evidence you have, you know, video evidence now. They're still allowed to get away with mistreating people. And, you know, that's something that we definitely need to um, work on and start making changes to these laws and start demanding justice because, you know, we allow this to continue you know, the situation that we have now, you know, it's only going to get worse. And so, you know, that's what I'm happy about in Chicago, that they are pushing for, you know, a citizen to be, or citizens board, um, basically, for the citizens to be able to control um, some of the investigations that go into some of these police officers. And they've been working diligently um, to make that happen. So that's wonderful. And, you know, Chicago, you know, has achieved a lot. In addition to that, you know, they received some reparations from when Burge was the police chief here. And basically, you know, they were beating confessions out of, you know, young men, black men and Latino men. You know, like I said, I think I shared before that one of my uncles, um, was in that situation, and they beat him, and 
you know, a year later he died because, you know, something was happening with his lungs. And, you know, he ended up dying. You know, he didn't have that problem before. Or if he did have it, it wasn't to that extent. You know, I guess that's the best way that I should put it. But, yeah, you know, it's just so much happening in the news. And this is why, you know, we encourage people to read the news, see what's happening out there. And and I know it's depressing because sometimes I just have to turn it off. You know, I got rid of my cable for a couple of years because it was just too much. You know, and when I say too much, just all of the bad news. But, you know, I don't know. This is what's happening in this country, and it's unfortunate. And this is why you have the people out here, you know, protesting. Some people that have been protesting even before, you know, some of these grassroots um, organizations came around. So this is nothing new. If you go back in history and you take a look at, you know, the riots and, you know, the protest movements, happening, you know, that happened in the past and currently happening. We'll just say most of them, more than most of them, I I venture to say, you know, 90% of them, you know, these movements started because of police brutality. And if you go back and you look at domestic terrorism in this country in which you have white, white mobs attacking, you know, progressive you know, prosperous black communities, you know, it was, you know, usually through the police that this would happen. And so when I had that interview with Chris Everett and we were talking about Wilmington, you know, his movie Wilmington on Fire, and, you know, he even brought in how some of the preachers, you know, would put the edicts, you know, on the church door and then would help people, you know, find out where the black people live. And they would stand out in the front and say, come on out. We know you're in there. And so, guys, you know, this history is real, you know, powerful. And it's important for you guys to know it and to understand, you know, what's happening. So, you know, again, let's see here. What will we be doing in the upcoming weeks? All right. Next Sunday, no show. Okay. No show next Sunday, but we'll be starting up the Sunday after that. Um, fingers crossed. <laughs> but if not that Sunday, it'll be after that. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Black America, New Deal, or Raw Deal. So we're going to talk about the New Deal and the many, many promises of the New Deal. And we're going to talk about how Black Americans were excluded you know, and if you go back and you look into my archives, and you'll see a show that I uh, did, and it was called um, Affirmative Action. And it was some other series, but it was Affirmative Action. You need to listen to that because I was talking about how Affirmative Action was white, and that was based off of Ira Katz Nelson's book. You know, you want to go and listen to that, and then you may want to also listen to my show that I had, um, I called it White on White Crime. So, you know, those are two really good shows that can help you get prepped for this. But I'll give you an example of one of the things that we're going to talk about on the New Deal or Raw Deal. We're going to talk about, you know, a lot of the social programs 
or our social safety net or lack thereof. But in particular, you know, one example is food stamps. You know, Link or Snap. You know, you know they have these different names for it. And what's interesting is that, you know, all the studies have shown that the majority of the recipients of this particular quote-unquote entitlement program, as they like to call it, the recipients are poor white people in red states. And so I was talking to someone about this, and, you know, they basically said that they don't believe, or they believe that the poor whites, you know, in working class whites, that receive those particular benefits, they don't realize that that when when they talk about welfare and all of that, that you know some people put that in that category. They think that they're just receiving you know an extra added bonus from the government to help them make ends meet. They don't re- realize that it's part of that quote unquote welfare problem that they like to talk about. And so, you know, that's what's really interesting about it is because when they said that to me, I was actually caught off guard, you know, because, you know, you have a lot of these people out here saying, you know, the welfare queen, and, you know, that started way before a long time ago, but it got popularized again with Ronald Reagan. But these people do not realize that they're receiving these entitlement benefits that they want the government to take away from black people. It's just amazing because I remember watching a video, and this white guy was out there complaining about welfare and taking care of the, you know, the blacks and the Latinos and, you know, all of this. And he said, but don't touch my Medicare. And when mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the newscaster, you know, kind of called it a little bit, because I think the newscaster was, you know, a little scared too, because there was a whole bunch of them out there. You know, the guy just looked at him a little dazed and confused. And so, you know, it's just it's, it's interesting because I was reading an article, and you know, because I mean, we read these articles all the time, but. Um, let me see here. What article was that? Let me pull up my notes, guys. Okay, that was from the Southern Strategy article. So it, the name of this article is Why Today's GOP is Basically um, Cracking Up <laughs> and, is you know, it's the final, final unraveling of Nixon's Southern Strategy, right? And so, you know, I'll post that a little bit later on um, after the show. But here is a quote from it, and I thought this was quite profound. But it says, the problem, Louis said, is that this latter group has almost nothing in common with the country club wing. So let me explain what that means right there. You know, with a lot of the Republicans, you have your, you know, very, very, very wealthy white elite that are Republicans. And then you have your poor whites you know, or the the working class, the proletariat whites that vote Republican as well. So what this article was doing was showing how they really had nothing in common. And so, you know, I'll go into this, and it says the country clubbers don't care about prayer in the public schools, gun rights, stopping birth control, abortion, and immigration. On the other hand, Common folks don't worry over marginal tax rates, capital formation, or subsidies for major corporations. And right here, another quote is, if they ever fully understood that their more prosperous 
party brethren were contemplating deep cuts in Medicare and Medicaid to pay for those policies, they would be in open rebellion. You know, take that mm-hmm. in. So they don't understand what they're voting for or voting against. And, you know, the way that I see it now, because, you know, you see some of these people, these are the main ones who attack us for some of our beliefs, you know, especially when we do shows talking about white privilege or white identity politics or white supremacy or anything that that appears to, um, you know, basically expose, you know, how white people benefit and, you know, in this country and how, you know, you know, race is a social construct, but in America, that social construct has wealth, okay? And, you know, it has mm-hmm. the value. We didn't do this. They did. And so, you know, us being the benevolent citizens that we are at this point in time, I think we should take on a campaign to explain this to all the white people you know, and, and let them know and and help them to see, you know, how they're being deceived, you know. So it's, it's interesting, but, you know, truth of the matter is they're not going to listen to us. They're not going to believe a word we say, and, you know, especially if it comes from, you know, a person of color. Now, if another white person got up there and said it, and it was someone that they halfway respected, then they would listen. And, you know, it's just interesting. But, yeah, what's happening with the Republican Party, you know, I find it quite um, entertaining. I guess that's the way to put it. So, anyway, so that was just, you know, an example when I was talking about the food stamps and how, and the thing is, the difference between food stamps and some of these other programs was the food stamp SNAP or LINK program came into existence by executive order by President Kennedy, And that's because many of the people in the outskirts, out in the country, rural America, they were starving, you know, and getting sick. You know, illness had set in because they were malnutritioned. And so what he did... Malnourished? Huh? You said malnourished. Malnourished. You said malnourished. Malnourished, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, malnourished. Sorry about that. And... um. Yeah, see, I forgot my point now. So, yeah, so basically that came via executive executive order from President Kennedy, and he had to do it that way because blacks were being denied these benefits. You know, when I say benefits, I'm talking about, you know, benefits from the New Deal. And on the affirmative action show that I did, I went into it um, quite a bit about how blacks Mm -hmm. were denied. And, you know, so he did that by executive order to make sure that blacks were included and were able to take advantage of that particular program, which has grown, you know, over the years. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we're going to talk about, you know, on that show. It's going to be a two-part show. Then after that, we'll do one part on the Liberty Party, and then we'll talk about black humanists, free thinkers, um, atheists, you know, in history, and their roles in the socialist and communist movements in America. And so there's a book called Hammer and Ho, and it's talking about farmers in Alabama and 
you know, communism. And so, you know, we'll be talking a little bit about that. And then after that, we'll be doing a show on capitalism, three parts. And that will be, um, let me see, what's the name of that book? Capitalism, the half that's never been told. And then the other one will be the um, American Slave Coast. Was that the other book that I was going to American Slave Coast? I think that is the other book that I was going to pull some information from. So that is that. So today's show, again, I've given you all some reference materials, um, you know, The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. Let's see here. White Trash and the Boundaries of Whiteness. And the name of the book is, you know, Not Quite White. And that's by Matt Ray. And so it says White Trash and the Boundaries of Whiteness. That's just a subtitle, but the name of the book is Not Quite White. Another one is Working Towards Whiteness by David Rodiger or Rodiger. And let's see here. The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, George Lipsis. You know, talk about how white people profit from identity politics. And, of course, you know, the condemnation of blackness, race, crime, and the making of modern urban America by Khalil Muhammad. So, you know, um, in the other book I was talking about earlier, When Affirmative Action Was White, Ira Katznelson. And so it talks about the untold history of racial inequality in a 20th century America, which is still happening to this day. And so, you know, it's just really interesting that before we get to that and go into the subject, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what was happening in the news. And so, yeah, for those that have been paying attention, I talked about this um, a little bit a minute ago. We're talking about how the Republican Party is basically, you know, they're imploding. And, you know, you you see what's happening here. And for those that are not I'm familiar with the Southern strategy, go and look that up. I mean, you know, what they did was very effective. And this is why, one of the reasons why we tell you all to pay attention to local politics, because that's going to affect you, you know, a lot more or more so than federal politics and, you know, what's happening. It's important that you know who your mayor is or, your, you know, who the sheriff or the constable is, you know, who your governor is, you know, your state legislators. You need to know who those, who those people are because they're the ones that create and make and enforce laws that deal with, you know, that, that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So, um Southern Strategy, we'll talk about that in depth on the Black America, uh, New Deal, or Raw Deal show. But we'll talk about it a lot more. You can go and look some of this up. Richard Nixon was one of the people that, you know, one of the main strategists for that. But, yeah, I mean, look at what happened. Um, Boehner, he stepped down. You know, the party is, you know, fighting within it's just interesting, you know, McCarthy, who was the golden boy, who everybody thought was going to be the next speaker, he stepped down because the Tea Partiers, um, you know, had evidence that he was having an affair. So, you know, he, you know, decided not to run. And so it's been a lot of things happening over there, and they're fighting each other. And the establishment conservatives are afraid of the Tea Partiers. 
because the tea mm-hmm. partiers basically have the attitude, my way or no way. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have people out here like Donald Trump saying that, you know, they need to shut down the government again in order to force, you know, President Obama to do what they want, you know, him to do. And that didn't happen the last few times. So it's not going to happen now. And so it's just interesting in the establishment Republicans, the white establishment, they're afraid that Donald Trump may actually win the GOP nominee. Yeah. <laughs> and they ought to be you because know. it's possible because they change they change their rules just like the Democrats change their rules, you know. And you know the rules were meant to help out the presumptive front runner, but that turned out not to be Jeb Bush in the case of the Republicans. So, you know, we'll see what and happens. But we could very well have a nominee Trump. So. And, you know, the interesting part about it is that you got some, you know, Democrats that are sitting there and, excuse me, cheering him on, you know, (laughs) because they just, this is just, you know, like I said, you know, it was funny, but it's not so funny because, I'm sorry, you know, Donald Trump, I don't, I can't even begin to imagine what would happen to this country. You know, I mean, all guy. of them are pretty, are pretty scary, though. None of them are okay. Right. None of them. Exactly. They're all really but let's scary. talk about the scariest one to me. This is, you know, it's one candidate that's scarier than Donald Trump to me, and that is that um, Huckabee, Mike Huckabee. Yeah, but Huckabee's that not guy. even Huckabee's not even in the real in the running, really. Like, yeah, so but I'm just talking about. Oh yeah, but I'm just talking about his mindset. Because this is the one who thought that, um, you know, that we were still living under Dred Scott laws. He thought that Dred Scott was still the law of the land. And most recently, he was on some type of, you know, right-wing talk show, and they were talking about reinstituting slavery. And, um, (laughs) you know, let's see, what's the name of this show? Uh... Mickelson in the morning. So this is a you know radio program in Iowa, and then the host Jan Mickelson, you know you know was talking about the criminal justice system has been taken over by progressives, and he said in order to fight back, conservatives should look to the biblical book of Exodus, and it says if a person steals, they have to pay it back twofold, fourfold. If they don't have anything, we're supposed to take them down and sell them. And he was talking about, you know, um, jails, and he claimed the jails are a pagan invention and, you know, how jails are inferior to slavery. And he said we should indenture them, and they have to spend their time not sitting on their stump in a jail. They're supposed to be working off the debt. And he said, wouldn't that be a better choice? And Mike Huckabee said, well, it really would be. Sometimes the best way to deal with a nonviolent criminal behavior is what you just suggested. And so, you know, they went on and they were talking about it, but this is not the first time that Mike Huckabee has, you know, made mention of this. And, you know, for people that aren't familiar, he used to be a pastor. And so, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Yeah, and so that's what I'm saying. This guy is, you know, he's kind of scary, especially, you know. I mean, Marco Rubio is scary for similar reasons. So is, right. so is uh, you know, Ben Carson. You know, so so right. are most of the Republican candidates. I don't really, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how can be scary? But he's not that scary. I mean, especially because there's no chance that he's going to win the nomination. He's too far behind. If Jeb can't win, right, but I'm not, Jeb can't win the nomination, how can he can't either? Right, but see, the thing is, it's not about them winning the nominee. That's not my argument. My argument is their mindset, you know, because if yeah, you but, have something. Mean, their mindset's not that different from a lot of people's mindsets. Um, I, mean, I don't know. Right, exactly. No, you're right. Their mindset is not any different than many of the, you know, constituents that, you know, are under them. And that's the point that I was trying to make. You know, there's, mm-hmm. if he's thinking this and he's saying this, you can only imagine, you know, because they had some people, you know, I was watching an interview, and they were talking about Donald Trump and some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth. And basically they were saying that some of the other Republican nominees that, you know, they, you know, while they're a little afraid of Donald Trump, but they were kind of relieved because he's saying things that they want to say, but they're not, they don't have enough courage to say it. So after he says it, you know, that's when all of a sudden everybody wanted to talk about anchor babies and, you know, all mm-hmm. of that. <clears throat> so that's my whole thing. It's the mindset, and we need to pay attention to, you know, what's happening here. So you combine that with the Southern strategy, you know, going down the tubes, you know, this is going to be a really interesting election year. And so I know one thing that Raina wants to talk about was an article that, you know, a show that she had heard on Democracy Now!, and it was talking about outsourcing a refugee crisis how the U.S. paid Mexico millions to target Central Americans fleeing violence. And so before we tear off into that, I also want to tell you guys about what just happened in Texas. And a judge in Texas ruled that they can deny birth certificates to immigrants' children. So I I think that's important to know. But go ahead, Miranda. I know you wanted to talk about this a little bit. I mean, it's not really an article. It's a it's a show. So, Democracy Now is a show. Uh, for those mm-hmm. of you that don't know, um, and on uh, this past week, they were talking about um, you know the crisis at the border, um, and so they were talking about how uh, we've actually um, been paying Mexico to prevent people. Um, fleeing violence in places like Honduras and elsewhere um, from getting here. And so, um, I mean, that's basically what's been going on. I mean, they've been, they've been you know, turning people around in Mexico, um, basically sending them back to their deaths. Um, and in some cases, well, actually, in, in most of these cases, I mean, we are, are in the United States are either directly responsible or indirectly responsible via our policy or um, our complicity in the um, drug, you know, in the drug uh, trade. Um, and, you, and and I say complicity because, you know, there is history of the United States being involved in drugs, to, you know, to help out with paying for their wars. Like, you can look up the, the Contra, you know, in Nicaragua um, for evidence of that. Um, and then there's just the fact that, you know, the drug trade in the United States is big money. Um, 
you know, even on the um, law enforcement side. So you can always look that up. But um, the point is, is that we are turning around men, women, and children who are fleeing violence at the same time that we're begging people to take in Syrian refugees. So that's the point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I posted the article that points you to the show Friday night. So you should be able to get to it because I haven't really been posting lately. But the name of the article is Outsourcing a Refugee Crisis, U.S. Paid Mexico Millions to Target Central Americans Fleeing Violence. And so there's a video with that. So, you know, uh, it's of the show. So that way, if you don't want to read it, you can just hit the video and listen to it. But um, they do have the transcript. So that's what I mean when I said the article because you can actually read it. Sometimes I don't like watching some of the YouTube videos. Depends on it. But I'll go ahead and read it. But, um, yeah, it was interesting, interesting, interesting about how all of that's coming about and how, of course, you know, over here in America, you have people say, oh, we would never do such a thing. Yeah, we will. And, yeah, we have. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to change and is actually getting worse. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, last week I mentioned a little bit about the anniversary of the Million Man March in D.C. And, you know, I talked about it a little bit. I was teasing a little bit about um, when I was studying with them how I got my ex. You can call me Kim X. And, you know, and, you know, I don't study with them anymore. I'm being facetious. But um, the name of their, you know, um, rally, if you will, was Justice or Else. Well, I think we're at the or else stage. What does or else mean to you, Raina? I don't know. I didn't come up with the campaign, but, I mean, obviously <laughs> I think that if, I mean, if we can't depend on our government to give us justice, we have the right to protest, and we have the right to disrupt, and we have the right to fight for our rights. Exactly. Exactly. And we've been at this or else for a while. <laughs> and so it's just really interesting because, again, there are a lot of things happening across the country, but it's not being reported by the media. You know, there's been a media blackout regarding, you know, some of the activities of some of these grassroots, you know, um, movements that are happening, and that's being done on purpose. And so I know some people were complaining that, you know, the Justice or Else rally, you know, didn't get any media coverage and, you know, it was a positive you know, um, weekend and, you know, how there was no violence and, you know. And so, you know, they were talking about, you know, that. But, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, a lot of white people are terrified of Minister Farrakhan for a number of reasons. And so, you know, it's interesting. You know, I'm still thinking about how he sent word to Jay-Z to cover up Beyonce. I thought that was interesting. And, you know, he, he you know, Minister Farrakhan, how can I say it? 
you know, let's let's go this way. There were some supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement who spoke, and you know, they spoke before you know Minister Farrakhan, and and what you know, some people are trying to do. And this is not the BLM people. The Black Lives Matter people aren't doing this. But, you know, again, we're dealing with, you know, with this particular group of people. You know, we're dealing with a lot of patriarchy. And, you know, again, I'm just afraid that you have people like this that are trying to co-opt, you know, what's happening with some of these smaller movements. And like I said on last Sunday's show, you know, you're not pro-black if you're not pro-black woman. You're not pro-black if you're not pro-black LGBTQ. You're not pro-black if you're not pro, you know, black, you know, secularists, humanists, free thinkers, atheists. You know, you're not pro-black if you're against black immigrants because this anti-blackness, you know, is global. And it's not just white people that are anti-black, you know, and I'm not saying all white people, okay, so don't, you know, don't send me that hashtag, but it's just interesting because, you know, he did address, you know, the LGBTQ community, and, you know, he was trying to be welcoming, if you will, or, you know, inclusive, but it's it's just the whole thing is just, you know, I know what to make of it. I'm just not necessarily willing to say it right now. But um, don't forget that that particular organization has been affiliated with Scientology, you know, as of the past few years. And so, you know, at this point in time, it's just, um, we'll just say it's looking a little ambiguous to me. You know, it may be clear to some of you other people, but it's not real clear to me as to what direction that's going in. And as Raina would tell you guys, if I can't really get a read on something, I'm going to kind of halfway leave it alone. But it's just it's interesting, and I already know there are going to be some people inboxing me with some links, and go ahead and do it, send it to me, because... Some of this does not make logical sense to me. So anyway, you know, they had their rally last weekend, you know, the big rally, and, you know, I I don't see a call to action, you know, and that's one of the things with a lot of these, you know, movements is, you know, it's a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric, but there needs to be a call to action. Um, There was an article that was in my um, paper, Lee, you know, the Black Free Thinkers Praxis, and it was talking about how some people were criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement in their protests and how, you know, white people are uncomfortable with it and how, you know, they're going to lose support of some white people because of the protests and things that they're doing. And they were saying that, you know, during the Civil Rights Black Power Movement, you know, that the blacks weren't protesting like that then. And that's not true. They were. They were protesting just like they're doing now, and they were doing more. 
And that's why I say, you know, there are some other smaller grassroots movements that are, you know, exercising some of those old strategies and tactics. And this is why it's important that, you know, we kind of come together and put some of this together. But, um, you know, it's interesting on how they try to contrast this movement with that particular movement. And the circumstances are still the same. And I think that's one of the things that kind of upsets me about, you know, what's happening now because, you know, even with, you know, some of the information that we're going to talk about today, you know, in 1909, they wanted to have a race convention or conference to talk about the racial issues in this country. And they were protesting then. You had your black, you know, um, you know, um, intellects, you know, out there, you know, saying, you know, you know, uh, you know, so I'm just sitting here, you know, because, you know, you had the black intellectuals then, you have the black intellectuals now, and, you know, there was an article talking about the social justice movement and how to make it less elitist. And I know that some of the issues that people have with the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, they believe that the black political elite or the black elite um, basically, you know, are the ones out here at the forefront of this. And so, you know, it turns into a somewhat complicated matter for me because, you know, I'm looking at some of these young people, especially the ones that were down in Ferguson and Baltimore. And I can even say Chicago because, you know, I've been out there and I've seen who's out there and I see who's leading these rallies. And these are a lot of young people. And trust me, they're not elite, you know. And, you know, when you see some of the – I'm going to leave it alone. But, you know, what I'm saying is is that sometimes perception is not necessarily reality, but, you know, it's complicated. You know, I can't even get my words together right now because – You know, I have so many thoughts, so many conflicting thoughts, you know, about that matter. But, yeah, we need to talk about, you know, some of that. And, again, this is a people's movement, and it should be based on the needs of the common, everyday, average person who has to live through all of this discrimination, all of this racism. And I'm not saying that well-to-do or elite blacks don't have to deal with this because they do. You know, you've seen what they've done to, you know, some of these celebrities. I mean, look at what happened in Texas. You know, the young man was, you know, um, a councilman, and they tased him and didn't care. Mm-hmm. And so you know, so you know the you know the black elite. You're not, you know, <laughs> you're a part of this too. You know, you don't get a pass. And so, you know, it's a lot of conversations that need to be had. You know, because in some regards, I think it's a misunderstanding, but in other regards, yeah, they're definitely on point in regards to the elitism. And so. You know, last week I was talking, I'm going to go on into the topic, unless, you know, Raina, you wanted to bring something else up. Mm-mm. Okay. 
So last week when, you know, I started talking about what's happening out here and showing you and contrasting it with what happened in the past, right? And, you know, I'm coming out of um, the condemnation of blackness right now. And so, you know, again, I was talking about how they use black people or Negroes, you know, or the N-word, if you will, you know, they use us as like the measure and, you know, and, and they contrast other people, other races, you know, to us because we're the negative one in in, in that regards as far as they're concerned. And so, you know, this is where some of these ideas of racial inferiority and crime, this is where it came from and why it was, you know, tethered to black Americans and how, you know, you have these immigrants that, you know, came to this country. Initially, they were seen as Dutchmen. They were seen as Irish, Polish, you know, um, Italians, you know, and, and, you know, so on and so forth. But then, you know, they decided to make these people ethnic whites, right? And so, you know, they dropped the ethnic part and just made them white. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, they kind of just kind of conflated all of that together. So it's just, you know, one big ball of whiteness, even though there is a hierarchy to whiteness. And see, in, in, in the interesting thing about that is with the hierarchy and whiteness, you know, some of it is about class. The majority of it is about class. However, you know, some of the people or some of the cultures that they adopted into that, you know, cluster of whites, you know, they still think that those particular people are inferior. But, you know, at least they got that white skin going for them. Because if you go back, and you look up some information, you can find this online. And, you know, you t- you can find articles about how Irish became white, how Jewish people became white, and how Italian people became white. And actually, the Italians were the last, at that time, were the last one to be inducted into the Hall of Whiteness because a lot of Italians are dark, especially if they're from the southern region of Italy. And so you have to go back and look at that history because there were a lot of Portuguese people, a lot of Italians that were being lynched. They were lynching Filipinos, you know, because Asians have been adopted into that particular group of people as well. And what's interesting is even with the Asian community, they would have East Asian versus West Asian. And so, you know, they even split that up. And South Asian, too. Yeah, and South Asian too, exactly. And so they weren't all inducted at the same time. <laughs> they separated them. And and so it's just, guys, it's just the whole thing. You know, um, with when I say Indian, I'm talking about the people from India. You know, they're considered Asian. And so it's just interesting. Go back, go look this up. Like I said, I encourage you guys to fact check everything that I say everything that we put on here. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Hit me up, send it to me. I don't get upset about that. You know, I'm actually happy because then, you know, we're learning together because, you know, I'm not an expert in none of this. 
you know, I just enjoy reading about it, and I enjoy sharing that information with you guys. And like I said, you know, the information that we give you is not necessarily comprehensive. You know, and this is why we encourage you guys to go out there and do the research. You know, want you to see it with your own eyes. Because, like I said, we're here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. You know, we're not looking for minions. We're not looking for followers. That's that's not my thing. Trust me. It's not my thing. So I just want you to go out there and and, you know, pay attention and see what's happening. You know, one of the things that I spoke about earlier, and I think it was part one. It was. It was the first show, the part one of this series. And I was talking about, you know, um, white resentment. And I posted a lot of articles. I talked about how Donald Trump, as well as Barack Obama, how they capitalized off of white resentment. You know, it's a very real thing. And see, and and this is the problem. And, you know, Raina will correct me if I'm wrong. But the way that I see this is white people in general have become so accustomed to having their privilege and exercising that privilege that when even, you know, a little bit, you know, one or two percent is taken away from them, they feel like they're being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And this is what's happening mm-hmm. across this country. Would you agree, Raina? And yeah, they're threatened, you know, they're threatening their privilege and they don't like it, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have some white people out here that, you know, they very well understand their privilege. And so, you know, they use these different tactics. So, you know, here's one right here, and I'm going to read this, and um, it's talking about how white privilege or whatever. Let me read this. It's measured using questions that focus on race and effort. People who answer in the affirmative to questions like this Irish, Italian, Jewish, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without any special favors. And in the negative to question to questions like this, generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class are assigned a high place on the resentment scale. And so basically, you know, you hear this all the time, and, you know, white people will throw this out in a minute. Oh, well, my family, you know, you know, Italians overcame, the Jewish people overcame, you know, when they start comparing us to, you know, Asians and Latinos, if you will. Um, they'll say, well, they came over here, and, you know, they overcame, they own all of these businesses, and, and it's just really interesting because, you know, this is my sentiment. <laughs> you have all these people saying that they worked hard and that their families worked hard to earn that wealth when that's not necessarily the case. Let's take it back. It was the blacks that were working hard. It was the blacks that built the economy of this country. We worked hard, and you all benefited, you know, from that hard work. And ever since, you know, blacks were emancipated, we've been called lazy. Yep. You know, and that's because we are no longer working for free. And so right. I just want you guys to go and look 
you know, of all of this, look at all of this. And, you know, and I feel so bad for, you know, the, the immigrants that are coming into this country. You know, I posted an article about how, um, how close, you know, the movement Black Lives Matter is with, you know, um, what's happening over there in Palestine. So, you know, with the Palestinians, you know, and the Black Lives Matter people, there's a lot of commonalities. And this is why, you know, many of us support the Palestinians. And, you know, we're exposing the apartheid that is happening over there, you know, in the Middle East, which is really North Africa. But we won't get into that. But... Because Raina knows that's a sticking point for me. I can't let that go. It's mm-hmm. like there is no such thing as the Middle East. That's North Africa, you know. And so, again, you'll have these people, and they're out here, and they're scapegoating these immigrants. And the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this because quite a few of these immigrants, you know, they have an African history. You know, I know I posted, you know, some videos a long time ago about Latinos and, you know, their African descent or talking about that, you know, you know, black grandmother or great grandmother that nobody talks about. You know, um, even in Puerto Rico, I've talked about, you know, um, Afro-Bariquas, you know, and, and, you know, what's happening over there. It's important for you guys to kind of understand, and I know sometimes you know, I get to talking and I don't explain it all the way through, but, you know, that's why I want you to research it. But what's happening with the immigrants now is what they used to do. The blacks were not used to. They're still doing this now because look at what happened in South Carolina. You know, that terrorist, domestic terrorist, said that, you know, one of the reasons why he shot up all those people at that black church is because their women were being raped. And so, you know, that's what happened at Black Wall Street when, you know, um, that the allegations were that that white woman was raped by that black man, you know, who operated the, you know, the elevator. And, you know, that was happening then and it's happening now. And they're using that same narrative with immigrants saying that they're coming over here and raping their women. And it's, it's the same tactics, guys, the same strategy. Mm-hmm just different faces, and so it's not only blacks now. Now it's the blacks and the Mexicans and the Hondurans and, you know, South Americans, all of them folks, you know, and and this is nothing but xenophobia. But, see, this is the thing. Racism and fear sells. Mm -hmm. You understand me? It sells. There is money to be made on all of this, and that is exactly what they're doing. And, you know, and when Barack Obama, when President Obama was elected, that was like hitting jackpot. If you, you know, you know, white hate groups increased, you know, they, they sold more guns, they sold more ADT systems, you know, in their homes. It's just, guys, you know, this is not new. This is not new. And so, you know, you, we talk about the white lynch mobs that were, you know, taking down, you know, black prosperous communities. And, I mean, look at what's happening now. What they're doing now is they have caravans of rented buses to go to the border to protest, you know, the people that are crossing the borders. You have people, you know, carrying, you know, c- you know civilians, 
you know, everyday citizens running around with their guns, you know, shooting at people, you know, whether they're at the border or in the parking lot of a big box store. You know, um, that happened most recently. This white woman shot at some people who were suspected of shoplifting at one of those stores. And she was, you know, just a regular customer. And I guess she saw them running. I don't know. I haven't read it. I just saw a little excerpt of it. But she decided to take her gun out and shoot at the alleged shoplifters. You know, and it's this type of vigilantism that this is scary, you guys. (laughs) It really is. This is scary. And so... You know, I know some people out there saying, why are they always talking about racism? Why are they always talking about what white people are doing? Because a lot of people don't know. A lot of us don't know the history. You know, I stopped a couple of conversations cold. One in particular was, you know, know, these white people on a thread. And, you know, I was Facebook friends. They have no idea who they are. But it was going through my news feed, and it kind of caught my eye. And I've talked about this before. And they were saying how, you know, why, you know, why is it that the Black Lives Matter people? Why can't they be like, you know, Martin Luther King and all of those people from the Civil Rights Movement? Then it was nonviolent, and you know, and 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 they were working with white people and all of that, right? The traditional rhetoric that we hear on a consistent basis. And so I just dropped a little link to an NPR show, and it was talking about Robert Greene in his his book, you know, We Will Shoot Back. And in that particular excerpt, that particular, you know, um, broadcast, they were talking about how the civil rights movement, how many of them were armed, and how all this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. I think that was the name of the show. All of this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. And after I put that little, you know, tidbit in there, nobody had anything to say anymore. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's really interesting because, you know, I'm going to have to look this up. Let me write it down because I really want to know what happened down in Ferguson with the Oath Keepers. You know, like I said, I have, you know, contacts down there. But I, when I talk to them, I keep forgetting to bring this up because remember the old keepers, they were supposed to arm some of the black activists down there, and a lot of people were nervous about it. And as a matter of fact, the old keepers had a split because, you know, anyway, I need to go and find out, guys, look that up, you know, because I just want to know that for personal information to see what happened. But um, like I said, it's been a media blackout. So anyway, getting back to this, you know, you know, um, it was one part I was reading this article, and it was talking about you know in this country, and how you can be anywhere in this country if you're a white immigrant, you don't really have to worry about being stopped and asked for your papers, you know, because um, we have a lot of immigrants from. Ireland, like I said, you know, I've told you all these, you know, these different countries before, but, you know, any Latino, what they're doing now is stopping them all. You know, it's, it's, are you okay, Raina? Yeah, I so. my headphones. Okay. And um, was it sure? Um, you know, how, 
you know, other how immigrants are being stopped on a consistent basis, you know, because they even stop black people because, you know, we have African, Haitian, you know, Jamaican, and so on and so forth, immigrants in this country, and, you know, they stop them and, you know, start asking about their papers, you know, the green cards and all of that. And, you know, I'm not sure what they're trying to do over here, but it seems like they're trying to kick everybody out but the white people. And so, you know, when I look at all of this, you know, it's like the racial resentment. Like I said, you know, guys, look that up and see how Donald Trump is, you know, winning on that particular ideology. And, you know, the anti-black attitudes, not only in this country, like I said, you have people over in Denmark, you know, who were marching with and for us. You know, black people are everywhere. And a lot of people don't mm-hmm. realize that, you know, there are black people in Palestine, there are black people in Iran, in Iraq. You know, when we talk about slavery, you know, we generally talk about slavery in America and in Britain. But, you know, a lot of people, they don't study the fact that, you know, over there in with the Arabs, you know, there was a big slave trade then and now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that explains some of the anti-black attitudes that, you know, some Arab people have when they come to this country. You know, and the ironic part is, is that when you go to many communities of color, mainly black communities, you'll see that they set up stores, they've set up chicken and fish, you know, restaurants and all of that. So they're capitalizing on it. But then when they leave at night, they go back to their, you know, um, white neighborhoods. But in Chicago, Chicago is so segregated that we just have, you know, we have particular little neighborhoods that's Jewish, Polish, and, you know, there were some neighborhoods that when black people would go over there, you would get beat and or killed or chased out. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you go back and look at, you know, some of the mayors, Mayor Daly, they're from Bridgeport. Now, there was no blacks living over there for a long time. As a matter of fact, um, one black comedian, you know, had a house built over there, and they were trying to prevent him from moving in, and it ended up in a lawsuit. And he's there. Now he's living in his little mansion over there, but they're not happy about it. But, you know, he's wealthy. So, you know, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of scared to say anything to him. So anyway, um, just looking at all of this. And so, you know, talking about how white progressives, you know, how they discounted crime, crime statistics and how basically, you know, at, at one point, Crime was, you know, if a white person committed a crime, you know, it would be counted as such. If a Dutch person committed a crime, it would be counted as such. Then what they did is they brought them all in and had just one particular group. However, you know, they had judges, they had police officers. They're not as quick to arrest, you know, a white person of a crime. You know, they usually just give them a warning. You know, we've seen them or seen articles in which, you know, some young white kids were out. Maybe they got caught smoking marijuana or or whatever. 
you know, in many cases, the police officers just send them home, and if they know their parents, they'll call them and just send them home. But, you know, they are more likely to arrest black kids and, you know, and, and black people. And this has been happening, you know, from the very beginning, from the absolute onset. And so, you know, what's interesting is with white people, they're allowed to be individuals. But with black people, and not just in this country, but many other countries as well, you know, you do something wrong and the whole black community is, you know, held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so um, it's just um, go out, like I said, you know, go and look up what I was talking about last week when, you know, they were talking about quote-unquote nigger business, and they also called it niggerology. And, you know, a lot of the pseudoscience of that day and how they were filling skulls with rocks and pepper, not taking into account the size or, you know, or any of the, you know, um, physical aspects of the person whose skull they were using. And so, you know, right here it says, you know, in America, when most white Americans believe in the declining significance of racism, statistical evidence of excessive rates of black arrest and the overrepresentation of black prisoners in the urban north was seen as many whites as indisputable proof of black inferiority. And, mm-hmm. you know, the same thing is happening now. You know, and so what they do is they take these statistics and they put them all together. And and, and they use these statistics to say that, you know, blacks are bad. Keep an eye on them. This is, you know, this is why it doesn't matter where we are. I mean, even the Africans over in Europe, you know, they're being, you know, eyed suspiciously. Remember when, you know, Oprah went to one shop and how they didn't want to let her in. And they didn't want her to, you know, they didn't want to show her a $50,000 purse. And so, you know, this is happening all over, you know, in, in, in Germany. You know, you have blacks over there that are protesting as well. And they were marching in solidarity with us when we were marching, you know, for Trayvon and Mike and Rakia and Ayana and Sandra, you know, and Tamir and a number of other people. You know, it's important that you guys know who these folks are, and not just the men and boys, but, you know, black women and girls' lives matter too. And so, you know, um, black women and girls are being incarcerated at the same rate as black men and boys, and that information Mm -hmm. is usually lost on people. And, you know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because... With black women in particular, you know, we're already a marginalized group. And, you know, we get battered by, you know, white men, white women, black men, other black women. And it's just a shame that, you know, we have to deal with all of that. So it's important for you guys to... You know, when you're out here and you're talking about what's happening, it's important for you guys to realize and to say that black women and girls matter too. So, you know, enough with that. Well, no, never enough. 
You know, we can't just, you know, sweep that under the rug. We've been doing too much of that. But, you know, remember that anti-blackness is definitely a theory. It's an industry as well because it's it's tied to capitalism, you know. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I was talking about this and that we need to talk about it from a global perspective because, you know, with this TPP deal, Guys, you need to pay attention. That TPP, no go, because what it does is that it it allows these corporations to basically govern in other countries, and to a certain degree, you know, it's kind of re reinstituting slavery to a certain degree. And what I mean by that is. What I need for you guys to understand is that China and India are extremely poor countries. And so, you know, you hear when they talk about how it really only costs $5, you know, to create, you know, a pair of Jordan shoes. You know, they're going to they're trying to have it so that American workers compete with the people in India and China and other, you know, poor countries and nations over there, and it's going to drive wages down. It's already doing it. That is signed into law. You know, it's going to turn into a very complicated matter. And just like, you know, many years ago under Bill Clinton, when he signed NAFTA, you know, there were many of us against that, but a lot of people were for it. Oh, yeah, just, you know, this is going to be great, you know, because Bill Clinton sold them on that idea. And look at what has happened. You know, a lot of our manufacturers, you know, they left America and went to Mexico and other places in South America because it was cheaper to make things over there and the labor was cheaper. And so now we have, you know, this group of people who no longer have jobs because the companies moved away, which creates more demand for jobs for a short supply of jobs. You know, this is basic economics with supply and demand. And that is what is going to happen. That's just a part of it. That TPP deal is so complicated. It really is. And, you know, another part that's interesting about TPP is basically, you know, the laws and being able to charge people with crimes and all of that. Look it up, guys. Look it up. You know, it's important that you understand this. And what's going to happen, and I'm not sure if you all have been keeping up with what's happening over there in Africa but they're fostering deals over there as well. And so, you know, again, you know, yes, a global economy, <laughs> you know, we've been dealing with that for a while. But it's important for you guys to understand how um, this is going to affect all of us and, you know, what it's going to do. But racism is an industry. Poverty is an industry. Fear is an industry and is sold, you know, globally. But, you know, us, ourselves, you know, black people in this country, like I said, you know, we play a part in perpetuating, you know, white supremacy. You know, and, and we're going to get into it a lot more in depth during the capitalism show. But, 
you know, a few examples of this is that when we leave out the house and we go to, the, to these stores, you know, um, are we supporting black-owned businesses? Is the money being recirculated into the community? So when we go to, like I said, a big box store or certain, um, you know, gas stations because we got to fill the car up, you know, we got to go get to work the next day, and we're working for this corporation. You know, we're we're fueling, you know, capitalism. We're fueling white supremacy in our everyday choices. And so this is why, you know, I'm saying that, you know, the game is still the same. It's just different players. We have to learn how to respond differently because, you know, there's a lot of redundancy, you know, a lot of the games that black people have made all over the world, you know, a lot of that has been lost. And specifically in 2000 and 2007, I'm sorry, 2007 and eight, you know, a lot of blacks, you know, trillions of dollars in black wealth totally decimated, gone. You know, and I was speaking about Africa earlier. You know, they discovered oil in Kenya. Not anything new, but, you know, there's oil in Kenya in other parts of Africa as well. And that's why they're brokering these deals. But at the same time, you know, you still have Africans that are being enslaved. There was an article going around, and I'm pretty sure most of you saw it, where it showed a little boy, you know, with a bag of, you know, um, you know, with a bag filled with, you know, whatever it was that he just picked. And, you know, it was talking about how chocolate, you know, and yeah, he was carrying the bags of the beans. And, you know, how our candy bars and, you know, our chocolate fetish, if you will, how it's, you know, perpetuating slavery, you know, over in Africa. And, I mean, some of the same issues are happening in China and India and other places as well. And so that's why I find it interesting, you know, when they say that, well, you know, this community is doing well. A lot of people don't realize that after the blacks were emancipated in this country, they started bringing, you know, Chinamen over here and using them as indentured servants or slaves. And what's happening now is even with, you know, a lot of these immigrants that are coming into this country, you know, a lot of, you know, you have a lot of white people out here trying to protest that, but at the same time, they want, you know, an economical nanny, an economical, you know, gardener, an economical housekeeper, and all of this. So while they're protesting those people coming over here, they also want to utilize the services that these people have to offer. And it's not only here, the same thing is happening in India. You know, um, you know, you hear people making jokes about this, but this is the absolute truth. You know, in India, you have a certain sector of people that are educated and would be considered wealthy, and they have many, many servants. you got to re- remember, they have the caste system over there. Hey, we have that same system in America, but nobody wants to talk about that. But, you know, like I said, you know, what's happening in this country is they basically, you know, prop white, I'm sorry, prop black people up and tell everybody else, you don't want to be like that. And that's not just here. It's in a number of other countries as well. But I just thought it was important that you guys know and understand 
um, what was happening there because this history, you know, um, you know, you had some white people in this country who were upset after the emancipation of the slaves, but, you know, some of them were upset with their, you know, grandfathers and great-grandfathers and so on and so forth because they felt that they were too stupid to see and too careless to understand anything but immediate gains. And that's a direct quote, you know, when they enslaved Africans, because when Africans were freed, then we became the Negro problem, then and now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. look that information up. But, you know, there were some whites, you know, they, you know, yeah, they were upset at the forefathers, and they're upset now because, you know, truth be told, you know, black people really should get reparations, you know, because they just released, you know, um, some more money, billions of dollars, you know, to go to Holocaust survivors, some went to Native Americans, somebody went to Native Americans. But what's interesting about the Native Americans is, you know, you hear everybody talking about the casinos and how Native Americans are profiting from that. No, it's very few. If you go behind that casino, you'll go to the reservation and you'll see abject poverty. Mm-hmm. Poverty. So and it's a lot of important. private money. It's, it's, it's a lot of a lot of times it's, they're involved with other companies that make far greater profits and what actually goes to even the Native Americans involved in the actual running of the casino, they don't make right. nearly as much profit. So Exactly. Exactly. So it's not what it seems to be. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, um, you know, when they start talking about, you know, the Negro problem, you know, they're talking about that so-called African blood, you know, that African Negro blood that has an evil past. And, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, when, when you start talking about slavery and, you know, from this context here, talking about an evil past, it's not like we volunteer to be, you know, slaves. And so, you know, that's why I sit here and I, when I start reading some of this, I have to put it down because I get angry. I get angry and I get upset at, you know, different things and tactics and, you know, what's being said out here as though we volunteered to be put in, you know, basically a perpetual state of poverty, you know, and it, as far as I'm concerned, a perpetual state of arrested development. You know, not only in this country, but globally. And this is why you have many of these people that are terrified, you know, of these grassroots movements that are popping up all around the world. You know, and, you know, they're doing everything that they can to shut it down. Because, you know, they they can't have that. Because even to this day, you know, while some of us may make quote unquote good money as, you know, some of us would see it, it's nothing compared to the profit margin these corporations have. And this is why it's important for them to squash any type of dissent. You know, not mm-hmm. only in this country, other ones as well. There's a reason behind that. There's a reason why they care, you know, if a woman has an abortion or not. They want you to have more children. Why? 
because then they'll have more people working at their companies. They'll have more people working in service-related industries. Um, they'll have, you know, some of these ministers that tell you to be fruitful and multiply. If you have children, more is a really good chance that your children will be going to the same church. And so then, you know, they, they basically use their churches as businesses and making sure that their children and grandchildren are taken care of. You know, you have to start looking at this. You know, and, you know, what's disheartening about all of this is the apathy that we see, not only from, Mm -hmm. you know, white people around the world, but also, you know, a lot of black people and Latinos and Asians. I mean, it's everybody, the apathy. You know, you have a lot of people that say that I don't care because it's not affecting me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. That little boy that you saw carrying that bag of beans in Africa in slavery, if they revolt and don't, you know, process the beans or pick the beans, then you're going to have a candy bar that's like $5. Because I remember when candy bars were a quarter. I'm telling my age here. But, you know, and now they're almost a dang on dollar. And so I'm just sitting here, and yes, it does affect you. Because, you know, everybody knows, I'm, you know, I'm a believer in I am my brother's keeper. And so I don't think we have time to sit around being apathetic because it's going to, you know, affect you eventually. You know, you have a lot of blacks that, you know, you know again, and I'm going to, you know, reiterate this here. When they had the black power, black civil rights movement of that time, There were only a few people supporting that particular movement. But now when you hear the stories, everybody, grandmama walked with Martin Luther King. Everybody, grandfather, you know, went out for drinks with Malcolm X. You know, know, and it's it's just interesting how everybody wants to claim that. When, you know, when you go back and you read the history, there were a lot of blacks that were against the civil rights movement. Because, you know, some of them were in comfortable places. Others didn't want to deal with the fact that white people were being agitated and the consequences of white people being agitated. And so, you know, this is going on even today. You have a lot of blacks that are saying that, you know, what's happening with Black Lives Matter and even with Occupy Wall Street and, you know, all of these other smaller movements, how these people are doing nothing but causing trouble. And, you know, and many of these people are not educated on this, but also some of them are, you know, creating careers for themselves because they know if they get out there and they speak for, um, you know, how can I put it? They speak for white folks and basically recapitulate what, you know, a lot of these white folks are saying that, you know, they would, that they can benefit from that, you know, and it's happening. I mean, you see some of these people, oh, no, racism isn't that bad, or no, they're just talking about racism and white supremacy because they're trying to guilt white people into giving them money or, you know, or or make white people feel bad about what's happening. And what's interesting is is that you hear that rhetoric today, but it was the same rhetoric of then because you had people like Booker T. Washington who were out here saying that blacks needed to bootstrap. And you hear people saying that even to this day, 
while they're trying to set up a place for themselves to be comfortable because that is, that's exactly what happened with Booker T. Washington. You know, he was basically telling blacks that we had to prove ourselves to white people, prove ourselves to be worthy of, you know, equal treatment or equality. And so, you know, this was happening then, and it's still happening now. You know, you got those new blacks out there, like, you know, what's her name, Raven Simone and Pharrell and, you know, a number of other ones that are out here, you know, basically pointing the finger, you know, at the black community. As a matter of fact, I remember when Barack Obama, President Obama, no, I said Whoopi. Yeah, Whoopi. Yeah, that hurts my heart. But Whoopi, oh, yeah, that's why I didn't hear. But, you know, know, yeah, you got Whoopi and, you know, a number of these, you know, um, other people out here that are just saying that, you know, they don't understand what black people are complaining about. You know, now, mind you, these are people of privilege, you know, and so, you know, I've... I don't even know what to say because it's the same rhetoric and the same words that are coming out of their mouths is the same rhetoric that you would hear from, you know, a lot of these white supremacists. And it's just, you know, now they got black people out here saying it. And, I mean, you even have that, you know, even in the secular community. I mean, hell, let's be honest about it. You know, um, it's just, it's crazy, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I gotta get going. I gotta get going. Biochemistry call. So I gotta go. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, look, you take it easy, and we got about thirty-eight minutes left. Okay. So, Rainy, you take care. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> you know. So you know you have a lot of people out here with that rhetoric, and if you go back and you look into the history. And it'll show you even back then how they had social programs and with those particular social programs, how blacks were, you know, systemically denied access to those programs, to the benefits of those programs. And some of the attitudes of the whites then were basically why should they waste their money you know, um, spending, you know, waste their money and waste these benefits on black people when, you know, they (laughs) were looking at us as the Negro, you know, criminal. But it wasn't all black people. You know, it was the so-called the lower class black people, the commoners, you know, because the black elite, if you will, um, you know, the whole thing, you know, the black elite were different. You know, you know how you hear sometimes when you have white people say, oh, but you're different. No, I'm not. You know, and it was a lot of double speak then, and there's a lot of double speak now. And, you know, and basically, you know, if a lot of these people, they, they talk about black criminality to justify, you know, not helping black people, not expanding these programs. And, you know, they put the ownership back on the black communities to go in and clean up your own communities. And once you've cleaned up your own communities, then come back and talk to us without taking into account that there are many different factors 
that, you know, that, you know, created that particular environment. You know, even here in Chicago, you hear people saying, well, black people need to clean up their own, you know, neighborhoods and police themselves. And, you know, they're not taking all of the factors into consideration. You know, where are the jobs? Where are the educational benefits? Where are they? You know, there there were programs, you know, in different parts of the country and, you know, notably here in Chicago, in which, you know, they, they set aside, you know, 10, 20,000 jobs for young people to work over the summer so that they can make some money and, you know, what have you. And crime went down exponentially. But they don't want to talk about that, that, you know, part of the problem is, you know, again, you know, this anti-blackness, you know, and when you try to bring this up and you try to talk about it, you get a, you know, a political backlash and they call it liberalism and, you know, they call it, you know, just all of these different names, you know, socialism. And so it's just, it's, it's really interesting, but, you know, they don't want to spend any money in our communities. And so right here in the condemnation of blackness, I'm going to read this excerpt, and um, I'm just going to read it. It says, progressive era black social scientists and reformers also exposed and challenged the limits of racial liberalism long before the post-war war, World War II failures of residential and workplace integration in the urban north fueled a national civil rights movement and set the stage for a national political backlash against liberalism. White social workers and white philanthropists failed to invest sufficient material resources into the uplift of African-American urbanites, advising these communities to, quote-unquote, work out their own salvation before others could help them, but black progressives cried foul, and they pressed for the same responses to their needs that were being offered to white working class and immigrant urbanites. As much as they embraced the self-help ethos of the era, and as willing as they were to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and build churches, settlement houses, schools, businesses, labor organizations, and entertainment venues in their own communities, they recognized that dollar for dollar, African Americans stood most in need of community investment and economic resources, but were least likely to be helped in the segregated black communities of the urban north, members of the working class and the elite recognized that thoughtful, constructive crime prevention costs money. Lots of it. White philanthropy was the dominant financial source for all crime prevention efforts, but native-born poor whites and new immigrants received the lion's share of attention and aid. The hidden cost to black residents was not simply victimizations by bad guys, but also brutality by bad police officers and the loss of faith in American society by the young and old who saw the police as a representation of the government's malign neglect of black people in general. You know, and, and it goes on and it says, beyond their own need to distinguish themselves from social and cultural inferiors, black reformers noted time and time again that the stigma of criminality fell mostly heavily on the most disadvantaged, isolated, and neglected people of the urban north. 
as they saw it, the progressive era discourse of black criminality was at its best a self-serving justification for segregation and black self-help, even as its proponents, white elites, helped Europe's huddled masses by advocating for social welfare agencies, recreation facilities, better policing, economic fairness, and an end to political corruption. At its worst, the stigma of criminality was an intellectual defense of lynching, colonial-style criminal justice practices in genocide. And so, you know, that should... Oh, we got Red Ninja with us today. Hey, Red. How are you? Hey, good, honey. How are you? Excellent. Glad to be here. Hey, glad to have you. You know, and so, yeah, I'm just talking about how, you know, a lot of the money was withheld from black communities, namely black poor communities. And it's not just in this country. You know, I try to post things from, you know, other countries, you know. I do I, I used to do it a lot. I haven't been doing it lately, you know, and I probably should start back up. But, you know, this is happening worldwide, but I'm you know, I'm an American. So and I've always been an American, so I can only look at this from this particular standpoint with experience. You know, but I mean, I'm sure if I went to some of these other countries, well, I can't even say that because, you know, there was an article about how some of, you know, some people from other countries, how they resented black Americans because when black Americans go to certain other countries, they're treated like white folks treated better than the native blacks in those countries. And so, you know, it just kind of sets up you know, this this resentment, this tension, unnecessary tension. And so, and that's because these countries want American dollars. And so, you know, and again, you know, black people in this country have been called liquid money because, you know, we don't hold on to it. We spend it as quickly as we get it in, in, in some cases. But, yeah, guys, you know, it's important that you all understand that. And I was going to make a comment when Raina left, and I was talking about Barack Obama, and how he gave a talk, and he was talking about how we can no longer use the excuse of colonialism as to why we have not prospered, if you will, in this country. And when I saw, when, when I read that, you know, I was so angry with him, you know, for a number of reasons, because, you know, what people need to understand is Barack Obama was raised, you know, in a very wealthy home, you know, um, he was raised in white privilege. Let's just call it what it was. You know, he was with his mom for a little bit, but she sent him to live with his grandparents. And, you know, his grandmother was the president of a bank. I think she started out as a receptionist and, quote, unquote, worked her way up. You know, but it's just, and he, it's just interesting, but... You know, colonialism, you know, has had a negative effect on, you know, black communities all over the world. And so this is why you'll hear us say it's time to decolonize. You know, and it's important that you understand and you look this up. But, yeah, you know what they're doing now with, you know, other people of color coming into this country, they were doing that in the past and even still currently with black people. So, you know, right here it's talking about the great migration 
years. And it says, you know, out of the bloodshed, black researchers and reformers rewrote black criminality in terms of racism in the criminal justice system. They tied testimonies of white police officers' complicity in anti-black violence to evidence that progressive era white vice had been deliberately relocated by police and politicians from immigrant communities into segregated black communities. Police misconduct, corruption, and brutality, they um, they argued, helped to produce disproportionately high black arrest rates. Um, the starting point for high juvenile delinquency commitments and adult prison rates in this new formulation, new Negro researchers and civil rights activists such as Charles S. Johnson, Anna Thompson, and Walter White used statistical evidence of racial disparities in the northern criminal justice system as evidence that crime statistics were an unreliable index of black behavior. And see, and it's, it's, it's important that you all understand that index of black behavior because you know they were not factoring in you know um you know the abject poverty they were not factoring in how you know uh, economic injustice environmental injustice and a number of other things that were happening in black communities and in some cases it caused them to react a certain way or they just didn't have access to a lot of things so, I mean, you know, a lot of the statistics that have been used over the years, there was this book, look it up, it's called How to Lie with Statistics. And they did it then, they're doing it now. You know, but like I said, you know, what I find so unfortunate, you know, with a lot of this is basically, you know, you have a lot of, you know, black people in this country who consider themselves new Negroes or new blacks or what have you. And, you know, they point the finger, you know, at what's happening in these communities and, you know, basically, you know, trying to say that, you know, we bring these things on ourselves. And that's not true. It's not true at all. And, I mean, you just have to look at it. I mean, when you see people like, what's that cat's name, Alan West, you yeah. know, you have, yeah, Alan West and you have Alan Keys and, you know, some of these other, oh, man, yeah, Ben Carson, you know, it's like I never want him to open his mouth up ever because it's like, you know, I'll give it to him. You know, he's a brilliant brain surgeon, you know, neurosurgeon, what have you, but anything outside of that, no bueno, no good. And this is something, because I've said to people before, you know, and they get mad when I say this, but this is true. You do not have to be smart to be a doctor or a lawyer. You just have to be able to basically recapitulate large volumes of information on demand. Now, they're right. brilliant in what they know, but anything outside of that, no, I wouldn't invest any money in that. You know, you know and so, um, you know, I just, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you understand what I'm that, saying, don't you? No, I, I totally understand where you're coming from with that. And the, the thing about that, too, is, um, it's always funny how you find white people supporting black conservatives the most and with white people saying that these are who black people should allow to speak for them. Right. How are you as a white person, as a person that is not of color, going to tell me who my representative is and who it should be? 
who are you to know exactly. my best interests at heart if you don't live where I live, if you don't know what I know? Who asked? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't lived our lives. They haven't had our experiences, but they sure as hell capitalize on it. Right. And they make money from it. And then, you know, I remember posting articles about how, you know, um, when you talk to your friends about racism and they shoot you down and just like, oh, it's not that bad. That's not your friend. Because right. you know, that's not a real ally. You know, and then and also, a lot of what? Mm-hmm, go ahead, honey. Also, I was going to say, also, the other thing, you mentioned this earlier, you know, when people want to make a separate case for you as a black person to say, well, you're not like all those other guys. You're, you're different. You're, you're more proper. You're this and you're that. And as you also said, you get this a lot within the secular and the atheist and free thinking community. And it's really offensive mm-hmm. because it's like, it seems as if you're, you <laughs> the people that you're talking to are automatically programmed to think the absolute worst. Exactly. About exactly. You. They have been, they have, exactly. They have, it's the fallacy of low expectations. Until you exactly. do something to make, until you do something to make yourself presentable or acceptable, you are automatically on the low scale of intelligence or on the low scale of social skills or whatever. You automatically exactly. come baggage before you've even opened your mouth. Exactly. And see, and that's the reason why, you know, when I start pointing a lot of this out, because, when, you know, white people have trained us to the point that they don't have to say anything. You know, another black person will speak up and say, well, no, it's not like that. Black people need to, you know, bootstrap and all of that. And I don't know why they're talking about racism. Well, they're just trying to, you know, get white people into giving money. And, and, and I mean, none of that. Is true, but the thing right. is, is that you know, you know, and I'll be honest, you know, there are many of us that you know we also benefit from white supremacy to a certain extent because, you know, we're considered privileged blacks, you know. But I mean, but I'm just sitting here and I look at some of this shit, and I'm like unreal because you hear some of the rhetoric coming out of some of these black elites or whatever their mouths, and it's like you would think that you're talking to David Duke. Or someone of that ilk, and they're harder. Right. On, but that's because they want to be the overseers, if you will. Like I said, some right. of these people have a seat at the table, but they want a better seat. I mean, some of these other folks ain't got a seat, but they see what it took to get a seat. So they're going to just put that out there and, and follow in the footsteps of the others so that they can get a seat at the table. You know, exactly. and for the most part, they don't, yeah, they don't give a shit about the black community or anti blackness or anything like that. You know, because, see, somebody convinced them that they were, quote, unquote, different, and you're not. You know? (laughs) And so, yeah, and, you know, and that's why I sit back and I look at this, and, you know, in in particular with the secular community, and this is why, you know, I'm sitting, I, I just get really angry sometimes because, you know, you'll hear them out here saying that, Believers, just believers in general, are, you know, uh, inferior or, you know, ignorant or stupid or any other adjective that's, you know, denigrating, right? And then they point the finger at them. But the thing is, is that, you know, the majority of the believers out here are people of color. 
And so when I see other people of color making some of the same, you know, assumptions and making some of the same assertions that, you know, some of these, you know, mainstream white people make, I look at them because as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're, they're making violence on the black community and they're opening the door for, you know, a lot of these libertarians, conservatives, they're opening the door for them to come in and wreak even, you know, more, wreak even more violence on the black community. You know, they're using some of the blacks to open the door. And we and, use In other words, what's happening is that they're not, they're mistaking the person for the belief, and they're not making exactly. a distinction between a wrong belief and a person being wrong. Exactly. You can love somebody, you can see things, you can respect people without having to respect a belief. You can show respect to people and see their good qualities without having to show respect to the belief. The belief is wrong. The person can still be – the person that you're talking to, the religious person that you're actually working with, is still a human being. They still have exactly. emotions. They show fear. They show love. They do all those things. It's just warped by a belief. And if that belief can be cracked, then it's something that allows them – to have their eyes opened a little bit, but none of us knew everything at the beginning. Most of us were raised right. in religious homes. Most of us were raised to believe in Christianity and Islam. And if you walked up to me and said, you're dumb for being a Christian, then I would have shut out. I would have shut you out immediately. Exactly. And in fact, exactly. you would have been confirming quote unquote, confirming scripture because the Bible actually tells Christians that they're going to be made to be ashamed of their faith. And it would be confirmation of their belief. So you're really not doing yourself any favors by doing that. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the whole thing about it is that when we bring this up and we show it, you know, you have, you know, people, some people of color in this community, they get angry, you know, because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't care. You know, it's a lot of selfishness because they only care about themselves and what they want and what they're trying to do. But at the same time, not having an opinion on white organizations like American Atheists going over to CPAC to recruit people who are, you know, notably racist and sexist and, you know, xenophobic, homophobic, all of that, all of that. And they're recruiting them and trying to get their monies and bring it over, bring those people over here. And I'm like, aren't these things we're supposed to be against? But the thing is, is that you know, they're they're you know, it's I just you know, I'm outdone some days because it's like people like Mike Huckabee. That was the reason why I was talking about him earlier. Um, mm-hmm. You know what's happening with him? He's part of that CPAC. And I'm like, you see what he says and what he believes and a lot of his constituents and other white people that are, you know, part of the political elite, if you will, they have the same beliefs. It's just that they're too afraid to say it. So that's why when Donald Trump started talking about anchor babies, that's why Jeb and the other ones joined in, because it's like somebody finally said it, but now they can blame it on Trump. And I mean, but this happens in a lot of different areas, but it's important for people to understand. And this is why I defend Christians. I'm not defending the ideology. I'm defending the people. You know, because and the other you thing have... too. The mm-hmm. other thing too is, uh, to be fair, I know like when you, with a lot of conservative and libertarian atheists, I mean, 
the dictionary definition of atheism is um, non-belief in God, right? So the only right. thing that, on its surface, would should that should define you as an atheist is someone who does not believe in a God. And a lot of conservative and libertarian atheists will say, well, to be fair, you can hold this belief, but what makes you an atheist is that you don't believe in a God. It doesn't mean that you have to accept all these other things. And on a certain, on a, and a, at a certain level, that may be true that the only thing that should define you as being an atheist and is your non-belief in God. But at the same time, I also have to, you have to ask the next question, which is, what does that mean? What does it mean to not believe in a God? If, if there really isn't a God, what does that mean for us as human beings? Well, for right. me, it means we have we only have each other. And for me, right. it means it's going to take working together to make the world a better place. Because exactly. we only have a brief time to make that work. We don't get a second chance in the afterlife. So why not make that happen now? And it's surprising how libertarian and conservative atheists and conservatives and libertarians in general forget that principle and just say, well, because I don't believe in God anymore, it's really now all about me and what I can do to make my life better and forget about exactly. everybody else. That's, exactly. That's, see. that's not helping us as a society. <laughs> right. It's that selfishness, that selfishness right. and right. being self-absorbed. And, you know, you see that with some of these atheists of color out here. And so, you know, and especially when they start attacking religious people. See, you know, attacking religion is different. And attacking religious people, that's something totally different, and that's what we're fighting against. But for those, you know, um, atheists of color or free thinkers of color out there, go and look up racial Darwinists. Racial Darwinists. And it'll give you some insight as to some of what we're dealing with now. Um, within this particular community and how, you know, because, see, what they're doing is using some of these blacks to gain entry into the black community. And, you know, because, again, they want the membership numbers, but most importantly, they want that money. And what's interesting, because look at how they treat each other in this community. You have people gaslighting each other all over the place. You know, you know, this year, you know, I dealt with some severe gaslighting. You know, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's just the whole thing is interesting. But they gaslight the Christian community as well, and the Christians, and that's why you have some of them out there confused and questioning themselves because, you know, you have some of these non-believers out here, you know, basically trying to confuse them and make them feel as though what they're doing and how they feel and how they're thinking is wrong. And so this is why many of them run away from us when we try to talk to them. You know, because, you know, that's why they think we're angry. This is why they think that, you know, a lot of negative things about atheists. But, you know, we we need to start paying attention to what's happening. But there are some people, no matter what we say, you know, again, they have an agenda. So they give no shit about any of this. They're selfish, and they want what they want. And there's nothing that we can say, you know, to change them. But here, I'm going to read an excerpt from the condemnation of blackness here. And it says, many black elites had embraced Victorian ideals of morality and respectability in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, often trumping their white elite counterparts in sophisticating sophistication and refinement. 
seeing themselves as walking billboards for the race's capacity for equal citizenship and distinguishing themselves from quote-unquote uncouth and quote-unquote criminally inclined poor blacks. Black elites often employ the language of racial uplift in the politics of respectability to describe black criminality in terms of class and culture. Their race relations writings and their social welfare efforts were often shot through with class bias and victim blaming. At times, black northern elites were especially contemptuous of southern migrants. In rhetoric alone, when speaking to an all-black audience or when seeking credibility and financial support from white benefactors, their talk about black criminality seemed indistinguishable from that of their white counterparts. In the first post-civil rights era of late 19th and early 20th century, Jim Crow's early years, ideology often trumped race for African Americans vying for political, economic, and social resources among whites. Conservative black opinion makers and race reformers who dealt who dwelt on the self-destructive behavior of poor blacks were more than likely than anti-racist activists to be heralded as clear-eyed and unbiased by their influential white peers. And so, you know, it's important because right here it says, for some African-American writers and reformers, black criminality was a passport to relevancy in a wider white world in which black voices were actively suppressed. Boom. That's the headline, people. You know, <laughs> the suppression of black voices, and that is a lot of what's happening now globally, but especially, you know, in America with what's happening now. You know, they're suppressing or trying to suppress the voices of people who are pointing out this white supremacy, who's pointing out the evils of capitalism and what have you. And, you know, like, you know, Red and I were just talking about, you know, even with, you know, within the secular community, you know, that, you know, what I just said, that what I read there, it describes to a T, you know, quite a few people in this community. And truth be told, and you all need to pay attention, some of these people absolutely hate poor people. You know, and I mean, these are some black people, you know, that hate poor people, poor blacks. But they, you know, they fail to realize that they're one paycheck away from being homeless. But exactly. that's different because, you know, the white folks have told them that they're different and they believe that shit. Exactly. And that's what's yeah. dangerous. That is what's dangerous. So you all, you need to pay attention to who you're listening to, who you're following, the type of rhetoric that's coming out of their mouths, and then you try to repeat it, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, I'm not looking for followers or minions or anything because when I talk to you, you know, I don't want to know, you know, that you've memorized these, you know, little excerpts from Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris or, you know, from, you know, Donald Trump or any of these other folks. You know, I want to know your opinion because, I, re right. you know, I went to a talk. I went to a talk not too long ago, and so was a line. We're standing outside waiting to get in. And so, you know, you had different people there making their pitches. And so this one guy stopped, and he was telling me about his organization. And so he had the piece of paper, and he was trying to show it to me and read from it. And I covered the paper, and I said, no, tell me what you believe. And it totally stumped him. You know, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't express himself. 
And you see a lot of that happening. And, you know, to me, that's going to be the downfall. You know, it's like, let's take your cheat sheet away, okay? Now we're going to sit right. you there on the stool with a microphone. Now it's just you, the chair, and the microphone. Now tell me what you believe. Right. And many people, you will hear crickets. They have no idea. You know, they, they just haven't, know. They haven't you know, thought about it. They haven't exactly. thought about it. They haven't really, exactly. they haven't taken the time to actually ask themselves not just what they believe, but why they believe it. That's exactly. very crucial. Because exactly. if you don't know why you accept something as true, then it's best to withhold judgment on it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and my it's point. The same it's, thing, it's the same thing that we accuse Christians and Muslims of when we go out out here and we talk to them, and we sometimes berate them. Mm-hmm. We accuse them of not knowing why they believe. But there are Christians that understand why they believe in Christianity. There are Muslims and Jews that understand why they believe in Islam and Judaism, and they're articulate about it. And let's right. not forget, too, you have lots of Christian apologists that are also very good at that. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you really you really got to be able to step up your game and say, here's why I don't believe in God. Here's why I don't believe. Here's how I came out of religion. Here's how I was able to actually do it and not make it feel like it's rehearsed. You have to, you have to have those conversations just as if you were sitting face to face. You have to, and the, and the key is you have to be able to sit down and actually listen to people. I, there are so many times that I see like debates and conversations happen like on YouTube and whatnot, or, you know, I see these conversations go down and both the atheist and the believer are just shouting right past each other, interrupting mm-hmm. each other, throwing out ad hominems. And yep. the one thing you very rarely see is people actually sitting down and saying, this is why I accept things the way that they are. And the atheist is very rarely responding and saying, okay, I understand, but here's why I disagree. Instead, it's, oh, you're an idiot. Oh, that's stupid. How could you accept that? Well, congratulations. Just shut the conversation down, and they're never going to take you seriously again. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I think it's important because, I mean, even with, I mean, all we have to do is sit back. And, you know, look at how some of the atheists talk to each other. It's like in many cases, they don't refute the argument that's out there. They decide to just go into ad hominems and start attacking right. each other. Oh, you're stupid. Oh, you're fat. You're blah, blah, blah. And see, what that does to me, what that tells me is you have, you can't refute or rebut what I had to say. So now you're right. trying to attack me in a different way to throw me off course. And I just sit back and I laugh at those things because, see, you can only feel bad. A person a person can only make you feel bad if you allow them to. And when right. you don't allow them to make you feel bad about yourself, they get even angrier. And, you know, and, it's, and it escalates even more. But, you know, like we were saying here, you know, it's a lot of things that we need to talk about, a lot of things that need to be addressed, but, you know, if you can't sit here and tell me what you believe and why you believe, then my question is the information that you're using to, you know, berate and denigrate, you know, believers, you know, how do you know that to be true at this point? 
if you don't even know what you're what you think or how you really feel, you're just recapitulating what some of these, you know, so called celebrity, you know, white atheists said. You know, you're not saying anything. You're right. not saying anything and I think a lot of it is internalized racism. You know, and you know, we need to address it, but of course we never will. Because, you know, unfortunately, we've been taught, especially in many communities of color, we've been taught to sweep it under the rug, not talk about it, you know, pulling a Morgan Freeman. If we don't talk about it, it'll go away, you know, which is not true. But there are a lot right. of people who believe that. And, and right. you know, even in this community. But, again, there's and, a lot of also, anti Go ahead, honey. I was gonna say, and I and I also want to say, I mean, there's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with reading, and you know, taking inspiration from guys that who you feel are philosophically intellectual. I take a lot right. from guys like you know Carl Sagan, and I take a lot from guys like you know Sikavu Hutchinson. But if somebody wants to come to me and actually talk about my views, and I discuss, you know, Sagan. Hutchinson, I discussed Dan Barker, I discussed Daniel Dennett, I discussed uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and, you know, what these guys actually think and whatnot and why I respect what it is that they say and sometimes don't respect what it is that they say. Um, right. I'm not going to sit down and, and, and punish the believer for not knowing <laughs> about uh-huh. things like evolution, you know, about politics about social issues, about, you know, LGBT rights. I'm not going to sit down and punish them for not knowing about these things. I'm not going to shun them for knowledge that they don't have. I'm simply going to say, if you don't know, let's find out and learn together. And then you can decide for yourself what it is that you want to actually believe going forward. And if you say, hey, Anthony, or because my actual name is Anthony, um, Hey Anthony, I appreciate everything that you that we talked about, but I'm still a believer at the end of the day. You know what I'm gonna say? Wonderful. I'm glad that you took the time to sit down with me and discuss these things. And if you're up for it, let's have another dinner. Let's get a beer. Exactly. Exactly. Because see, your belief you know, should not define your worth as a human being. Exactly. Or lack of Exactly. It. Exactly. That's just one, you know, subset or one component or one factor to that particular equation. And see, that's the thing. It's a lot of people in this community, they're living in these bubbles. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, many of the people that you just mentioned, you know, a minute ago, I have very little to no respect for them. Um, And for a number of different reasons, you know, now everybody knows I love me some Daniel Dennett. Right. But, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, I challenge people to go out there and do is basically, you know, you need to understand what you're out here promoting. You need to understand that there is a political agenda with many of these people. Um, You know, like I said, we've already pointed out the hypocrisy with American atheists and how they are now officially a lobbying organization. Now, we were telling you that this was happening, and we were warning people. We've been doing this since they went to the first CPAC, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is that they finally just went on and converted, you know, their organization to that. And, you know, it's like, you know, they're out there actively recruiting people that we normally would, you know, you know shun or be totally disgusted with. 
And it's just, you know, I'm trying to understand how, you know, some of these people see this and, and think that it's okay. But one of the things that I've learned, and we're going into overtime, people. We're going into overtime if you want to call in, 310-982-4273. Again, 310-982-4273, and you'll be able to listen to the overtime live. Otherwise, it's going to cut you off. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate you. And no show next Sunday. Don't forget that. And so um, going back to that is, you know, the agenda behind it. Because, you know, you hear all these people, and they're talking about all of these missions. And so I'm going to tie it back into the anti-blackness because when we start pointing out the racism, you know, and that's not even, I mean, what I mean is not only the secular community, but the LGBTQ community, you know, the women's feminist movement. And see, this is the reason why, you know, I look at a lot of the people in the secular community and I laugh and roll my eyes and walk away is because if you're not dealing with the xenophobia and the racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia in this community, then you're on some bullshit, but especially with the racism. Because if you're sitting there and you're not addressing the racism, you're not acknowledging, you know, what's happening out here in streets and how black people are being shot down like dogs and, you know, the, you know, the dog whistles and, you know, the, the coded words and the coded language, you know, they're not addressing it. And, you know, we've gone after them many times, you know, about not addressing it. But conveniently, now they want to bandwagon, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I really have a problem with that because when all of that was happening, you know, especially when it jumped off in Ferguson last August, I was the only one posting about Ferguson and what the hell was going on down there. And, you know, I was on the Internet desperately trying to find information because, I mean, Twitter is hot. I got a lot of information on there, but, you know, I was tracking down Ustream and Livestream links and YouTube links trying to figure out you know, so I can get people the, 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 the links so that they can see this shit with their own eyes, right? And, you know, and I was just sitting there, and atheist community was quiet. And it was one man, his name is Joe Broomer, and he eventually came out and said, he said, you know, he was disappointed. He was disappointed with the community and that the only person he saw, you know, reporting on it, talking about what was happening was me. Not even any of the other, you know, um, humanists or atheists of color. They weren't talking about it. And unfortunately, you have a lot of, you know, atheists of color in this community who are afraid to talk about these things because it's not popular or, you know, it, it, it you know, um, it's a turnoff to their white, you know, benefactors, and they don't want to do anything that will rock the boat because they think they have it good, you know, if you will, not realizing that these are libertarians and that at the end of the day, they're not going to give you anything special. They're going to say, well, you should have taken it when you had opportunity. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is, is that they weren't even addressing what was happening in Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago, and all over the country. But now you want to say that black lives matter, and they're only tethering themselves to that movement so that they can get more visibility. Now, as far as, you know, some black, you know, humanists and secularists and atheists out here, you know, some of them have been talking, you know, about Black Lives Matter, and they've been consistent with it. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about these new blacks that just discovered that Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter can be profitable to them. 
you know, right. uh, people. And it's just the whole thing. And so, you know, it's a lot. Of, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if they're not doing, you know, anything to really address these issues, I mean, you know, how can you say that black lives matter and that you care about the black people or the people of color in this community when you won't even address, you know, racist within your own community? And I tell people, you know, when somebody writes something positive about something that a black person does or when they attack something that happened that, you know, um, shows the mistreatment of blacks, you go to the comment section, you know, the police are the good guys and these people and black, I mean, just the comments. And they say absolutely nothing. They say nothing to chastise them. And then when they finally do get some courage and put mm-hmm. out, you know, an article, you know, um, supporting black people, then their members, again, in the comment section, are having a shit fit. And they start talking about they're going to withdraw their membership and not support. And so then there you go with the money issue again. You know, so many of them have been keeping their mouths closed, but see, you know, they're recruiting certain blacks into these organizations. So, yeah, the black people can say black lives matter and we can support them. We can give them a few dollars and then maybe, just maybe, they'll stop putting us on blast for not really doing anything about the situation. We'll give them a few extra dollars. You know, we we can we can get them to shut up for $10. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> You come. You know I'm telling the truth now. You know I'm telling the truth, and I'm just sitting back. And then you got people like me, and I'm like, "That's some bullshit." And I'm like, "I don't want to talk at your conference, your convention. You ain't got to give me a dime. I got my own money. Fuck you once, twice, and three times, motherfucker. So fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you too." And so you know, and that's how I feel because you know, you know, I always put that, you know, that 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 quote up from Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed, and that is what I am, you know, because I did a monologue about a month or two ago, and I was talking about me being a nonconformist, and so that's one of the reasons why I kind of fell out of religion, because they couldn't answer questions, and it made no sense, but then I come over to the secular community, and you know, I'm heralded, oh yeah, you're great, you don't believe in religion, but yet, it's still some bullshit on this side. Let's talk about that. Well, no, no, we we didn't kind of we didn't want to talk about that. Um, maybe you should pick up this talking point right here. No, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this. And then now, all of a sudden, you're a troublemaker because you refuse to conform. And I'm like, you fuckers knew it's what like- I was when you get me. I mean, you know, it's so it's just, <laughs> it's just it's like hilarious. in my back. Am I am I having an argument with a church board again? Am I am I on the deacons board trying to get approved sermons? Or right. are we free thinkers? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know <laughs> You know, dare to be different. So, you know, this is the reason why sometimes I help religious people when they argue with some of these atheists and I'm like, Okay, say this. And I'm like, they give you any more trouble? No, I didn't think so. And so, you know, it is the funniest thing ever. But, um, you know, it's a lot of anti-blackness in a lot of these communities, even within the LGBTQ community. And with that there, you know, because, I mean, that movie Stonewall that came out this summer, you know, it was a white hetero male that was the hero of the movie. And, you know, if you go back and you look at the history, it was black and Puerto Rican drag queens that decided to fight back. 
And Miss yeah. Major, who in Oakland, California, she was one of the people at Stonewall. And she was talking about the movie, and, you know, that's why a lot of us boycotted the movie. And, you know, they don't go back and they don't talk to people like Miss Major and some of the other ones that were there and were actually fighting back. You know, in the LGBTQ community, you know, it's interesting because Hillary Clinton said to some gay white activists how they changed hearts. But, you know, a month before then, she told the Black Lives Matter protesters, I mean, no, no, I'm sorry, let me go back, let me correct myself. When she was talking to the gay white activists, she said that they changed minds, including her mind, changed her mind about LGBTQ equality. But a month or two before then, she told the Black Lives Matter people that they can't change hearts. Okay, so I'm like, I'm trying to understand why gay white activists can change minds and, you know, subsequently hearts, but black people can't. And so my thing is, is that that leads to another question. And, you know, so, I mean, is is Clinton acknowledging the, the deep racial resentment in this country? And if that's her way of acknowledging, then maybe, you know, she needs to help us, you know, right some of these wrongs, you know, because, you know, she's correct. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, and I think you, I think you're hitting on something, which is that just because you're liberal or an atheist does not mean that you have everybody's interests at heart. And right, the Democratic <laughs> convention, you know, that we're working with right now, and the candidates that we're working with are a pitch perfect example of that. You know, mm-hmm. because on the one hand, you have guys like you have Bernie Sanders who to actually be genuine and actually turning down donations from people that he feels do not have his or the people's best interests at heart. And then you have Hillary Clinton, who seems to be flip-flopping on every other thing to get Mm -hmm. get the donations and to get the, I would say, media attention that she so badly wants to crave. And she's very good at, I would say changing the color of her wardrobe where the crowd fits. Right. Exactly. Whereas Bernie Sanders has pretty consistently been one person on every single issue and has not flip-flopped and has been consistent and has done things that show that consistency instead of just talking about it. Right? Right. Uh, At least Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And like that, the whole, the Democratic, the Democratic debate that happened this past week um, was another real indicator of that. And I, I love how, like, Anderson Cooper basically went in on each and every single candidate <laughs> and basically checked them because mm-hmm. even though it was not nearly the absolute shit show that the Republican debate was, <laughs> nevertheless, you still had people flip-flopping on issues, flip-flopping on Black Lives Matter, flip-flopping on... Um, healthcare, flip-flopping on student loan debt and what to do about it. And it was just like, dude, open your eyes, man. Mm -hmm. Understand that not everybody has your best interest at heart because people are going to be people. Politicians are still going to be politicians at the end of the day. Um, Whether you're Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Socialist, Green Party, doesn't matter. People are people. And they have to be held accountable for their actions. And they have to be held accountable right. for their stances. And, and at the end of the day, we should only be asking, 
How is this going to help the American people? And are you going to be consistent? I don't necessarily myself think Hillary Clinton is going to be the most consistent candidate. She's better than any right. Republican, but she's not, she's not nearly the person we want in the Democratic seat. But I'm just speaking for myself. Right, right. And, you know, like, you know, with the donations, it just seems to me that she goes where the money goes. That's my problem. Right. Yeah, but see, that's most of those politicians. You know, whatever crowd that they're in front of, they pander to that particular crowd. And so they're going to say whatever they need to say to, you know, get elected. And because we've become so apathetic again in this country that we've just gotten to the point that we do not expect politicians to keep their word. And so, you know, when they back down and not do what they were supposed to do, you know, we sit back and say, well, I knew they were going to do that, but I voted for them anyway, (laughs) you know, and so – you know, we have to make some changes on our end, and we have to start making them accountable for, yeah. you know, some of the crap that they're doing. And that's the only way, you know, any of this is going to work, make them accountable. Because, you know, my whole thing is hypothetically, if they, if Hillary is elected and Nate Silver has thrown the election to Hillary, he says she's going to win, right? And for those of you who aren't familiar with Nate Silver, he's this statistician, just a math guru, just an expert beyond expert, you know, um, 538, go look him up. And basically, um, you know, I'm just looking at it. We need to hold her accountable and, and make her change some of the crap that her husband implemented. Because, you know, that, you know, that welfare to work program, it has totally, you know, disenfranchised a lot of people. I mean, um, Mental health care, you know, that's when they started closing down sanitariums, and and they also shut down a lot of transient hotels. That was mainly Ronald Reagan doing that. Yeah. And, you know, what they're doing now is gutting, you know, Social Security, again, Ronald Reagan, and, you know, it's gotten progressively worse since then. But a lot of the, you know, what they call entitlement programs, and we call it social safety net, And basically, like I said, you know, we talked about this on the show, how the Republicans are tricking or trying to trick their constituents because they're trying to basically push all of these social programs to churches for, you know, the church to, you know, help the people in the communities. But they are well aware that these religious people are not equipped to deal with that type of demand. And so it's going to fail. And they want it to fail. And then in addition to that, the states will receive the money. And so, you know, again, people will be able to, you know, systemically discriminate against certain people, namely black folks. And, you know, basically, like, you know, I'll give you an example, and I've used this on the show. Um, For the Section 8 program, you'll see them trying to push people off of Section 8 push people off of public aid and, you know, take those benefits away from any type of infraction. And what happens is the federal government still gives them a certain amount of money, but when they get to decreasing, you know, their costs, you know, kicking people off the program, that extra money, they get to use that for their pet programs. You know, that's their pork. And so this is what I'm trying to get people to understand. You know, if they push, you know, the entitlement programs or the social safety net, to the states, then the states get to discriminate 
But in addition to that, they get to pilfer all of those funds. And so this is why I think it's important for people to understand the politics and how it works and what they're doing, because what they're doing is they're disenfranchising um, black people, Latino people, indigenous people. You know, those are the main three, you know, categories that are having, you know, these particular issues. And basically, um, we need to talk about it. And, you know, poor whites, too. You know, it's it's like, you know, they get hit hard. And that's one of the reasons why they have so much resentment. Because, you know, everybody in the news is talking about the black people getting shot and the problems of the black people or the problems of the Latinos. And they get angry, you know, about that because their needs are not necessarily being addressed. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. I understand, you know, some of the same issues are happening with them, and they need a voice too. I get that, you know, but, you know, in the meantime, they're the ones trying to punish us, not realizing that they're, you know, kind of punishing themselves. You know, a couple of years ago, I remember posting an article about how there was going to be a cut in food stamps. However, they increased food stamps for people living out in country rural areas, and that's mainly white folks. But you, you have a lot of blacks and Latinos living, you know, in those areas as well. But anyway, um, you know, you need to pay attention. And what's happening now, again, with the, you know, the migrants, you know, the people of color that are coming into this country, or immigrants, as they would call it, you know. And basically, it's kind of cognitive dissonance for some white people because, you know, they're claiming these people are coming here and taking jobs and being criminals and all of that, but yet they still want to employ these people to do jobs you know, at, at at slave wages that, you know, that they need, like be their, you know, um, housekeeper or the nanny for the kids. And so it's like, you know, they want them here, but they don't want them here, if that makes any sense. And I just sit back and I look at this shit, and it's just absolutely outrageous. But anyway, we are all off subject, off topic, but, you know, what are your views on anti-blackness, not only in this country, but globally, Red? Well, um, I have to say that it's evidence that we still have yet to transcend, you know, the racism that has been apparent for the hundreds of years. And frankly, it's like the saying goes, old habits die hard. So exactly. it's when it's old habits die hard. And um, it's when it comes to anti-blackness, uh, the, the one thing that we can do is consistently allow ourselves our voices to be heard and consistently allow ourselves to be seen as human beings on equal footing with everybody else. And if we keep, if we keep the pressure on our leaders and if we keep the pressure on those in power, they have no choice but to at least recognize and talk about it and make it a priority. Exactly. Um, That's and right. also it's unfortunate that, these kinds of attitudes are undercover. The one thing that the 21st century has bought us is the ability for racism to be a lot more subtle than it was before. Frankly, I like my racism. I like my racism out in the open. That's right. I, I you know, I like, I like the bitter, 
straight up truth. I like for you to say exactly how you feel so I know whether to avoid you or not. And if there is one thing about the 20th century that brought the civil rights movement, it was anti-blackness being out in the open and being unsubtle and black people exactly. getting really fucking upset about it. Exactly. And, raising and their I voice agree with returns. that. Exactly. I agree with you. You know, that's why I posted articles about what was happening in Alabama. It was because of Alabama that, you know, in other places, but mainly Alabama that we needed the voting rights act. And now that they shut down, you know, Section 5, you saw Texas, North Carolina were the first in line to change things. And in Alabama, you know, they shut down over 30, you know, DMVs, which is Department of Motor Vehicles. And that was only, I think they say about four left in the state. And, you know, you got to catch three buses and, you know, travel by horse to get some of them. And, you know, and and this is how they're limiting people being able to register to vote, and it's done on purpose. And and, and see, what's interesting is I've been warning people, you know, they went after Section 5 and took that down. Now they're getting ready to go after Section 2. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if people understand and realize what's going to happen, but, you know, when these people say they want to take their country back to the old days, they're doing it slowly but surely. Right. And, you know, atheists are laughing at that. Some atheists are laughing at that and actually saying, oh, well, it's not so bad. You know, we're a post-racism kind of country, but there's complete cognitive dissonance when something like this happens in the state of Alabama. When you actually have a situation where people are being forced to take money that they actually don't have and travel just to have their votes put in and have their voice heard. If that doesn't show you that racism is alive and well, well, you don't want to know things. Exactly. You don't exactly. You don't want to know. You don't care to know because it doesn't matter to you. It matters a hell of a lot to me. You know, it matters exactly. because people actually die trying to protect the rights of black people to vote and to have their voices heard. Blood's been spilled. And, but you know what? It's cool Because Alabama has basically, you know, they're not being subtle about it. They're saying, we don't like you. We don't want your voice to be heard. We don't care about you. Go away. It takes that kind of action and those kinds of words and those kinds of situations to jolt people out of their comfort zone, to get people to actually wake up and open their fucking eyes. Yep. And we we need exactly. more of that to get to get people upset and to say, "Holy shit, this is real." This this isn't some subtle this isn't anything subtle. It's real. Anti-blackness is a thing. It really is a thing. Exactly. It's an industry because they make they make money off of this anti-blackness. You know, it's, it's tethered to racism and capitalism. And when we try to tell people that, you know, some of them get it, some of them don't, I understand. I used to be one of those people who didn't get it. You know, I couldn't understand it. But that's because I was laboring under the delusion that I was different. And, you know, like I said, you know, I had older people tell me, okay, this is what you believe now. Live a little, baby. And that was true. I lived a little. I lived a lot. You know, my story, you know, I have a lot of people saying that, you know, I'm interesting. And and I'm like, no, I ain't nothing interesting to this shit when you living through it. I mean, you know, you know, and so, 
<laughs> you, you know, but I mean, yeah, so it's a lot to talk about, Red, but yeah, you know, come on back. Um, you know, this Sunday coming up to 25th, no no show for me. I have to deal with some things. But mm-hmm. um, the Sunday after that, I'm going to start my two-part series, and it's going to be called Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. And so I'm going to talk about the New Deal and death and, you know, right. include the Southern right. strategy and how it's been working. Because at the beginning of the show, I was talking about the Southern strategy, how it's imploding. You know now, right. now with the you know the Republican clown car, or no, it's not even a clown car because they got a luxury bus. You know, so because right. it's, it's right. no longer three or four of them. You know, so, but um, you know, talk about those things. And one thing that I said earlier, and I want people to understand, like you know, with the racism and the anti-blackness and just the xenophobia. You know, they're shipping buses of people to the borders. They're shipping buses of people different places because it was, you know, they sent a gaggle of people down to Ferguson to encourage the police. And it wasn't just the white people from St. Louis and in Ferguson. These were people, white people coming from all over the country to protest the protesters. And so, you know, you don't hear about those stories. Go ahead, babe. What you say? Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, they even sent, white supremacist groups with weapons. Yes. On top of that. Yes. And I just, was just, just talking about havoc. the Oath Keepers. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking about the Oath Keepers because they were supposed to arm, you know, some blacks, some black activists down there. And it started scaring white people all over this country. So yeah. the leader was telling the spokesperson to kind of calm it down. And he got mad, split off, and started his own little group. And, you know, it's like, you know, life, you know, you get busy and life is coming at you. I haven't really had a chance to go and look that up because, you know, they should have marched with the black activists a while ago. But the thing is, is that there is a media blackout when it comes to these grassroots and community activists and movements that are happening all over this country. And that's why it's important that, you know, we have people out here filming it and, you know, and and putting the information out there, which is why I tell people to subscribe to my Black Free Thinkers Praxis newspaper on Paper Lee or our other paper, which is Moving Social Justice Daily. Subscribe to either one of them. You know, I got the algorithms down, and you'll find information. It's, it's, they're actually really good papers. You can get a lot of information out of them. But, yeah, you know, and it's a blackout, and, you know, what's happening is they feel that if they don't put that on the news and people don't know about it, then people are going to assume that it's over and that it's no longer happening, and that's not the case. You know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, um, you know, even with, you know, our friends that we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, the new black codes, they're not folding. And it's a lot of stuff being done and a lot of work being done in the, in the background that's just not getting the press attention. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I feel that we need more outlets. And when I find them, I post them. But unfortunately, you have some people in this community that, you know, again, apathetic. They just don't give a damn, not even a sliver of a damn. And so sometimes, you know, I'll sit there and I'm like, Kim, why are you posting this? These people don't give a shit, you know. And so, you know, I stopped posting as much. You know, because it's like I'm just getting to the point that I'm like, you know what, they really don't give a shit. But then I think about the people that do, you know, you know, care and that do appreciate, you know, what I put out there. 
And so, you know, I just continue on, put a little bit here and there, put a lot, you know, talk about whatever on the show. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it can be discouraging sometimes. You know what I mean? No, I, I understand. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where if people don't want to know something, they won't know it. And if they do want to know something, they'll go out of their way to find out. So exactly. The only thing that you can do is let it be known, discuss it, and if people ignore it, it'll be to their own peril. Because if if you if people are generally apathetic to things that don't affect them, but once it arrives in their front door, it's a lot different. Right. Exactly. 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 And 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 and, and it's it's one of those things where if you don't care, like my thing, the the, the thing that um, I care about the most is education, and the education of okay. children. And the education of black children, especially. Um, one of the really disturbing things, you know, while we're talking about, you know, whitewashing and anti-blackness, one of the really disturbing things that's that's been happening for since the beginning of our public education system is the complete rewrite of black history in regard to slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even right now, you have places in Alabama, Texas, Louisiana that actually don't even refer to black slaves and African-American slaves as slaves, but workers and wage holders, you know, who were happier, you know, when they were slaves because they were given food to eat and whatnot. But wait a minute, Mr. Teacher, what type of food were they given to eat? What type of structure were they given? What type of treatment did they have that made them happy? Because let's remember Slaves were beat for as little as not even smiling to their masters, not even deferring to their masters, or for even having right. a bad attitude. Exactly. So, exactly. And, and we like right now we have school systems actually teaching that slave that slavery was a good thing. You know that you know the civil rights activists were terrorists. Exactly. And damn, exactly. How much and how much have I heard that now about Black Lives Matter activists? The Black Lives right. Matter the Black Lives Matter activists were as much of a terrorist today as Huey Newton and the Black Panthers were back in the sixties and seventies. Give me a break. Exactly. 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 And you know, another um thing they call the, um, slavery, they call it a jobs program. And so right. you know, when you read that shit it's like your head is ready to explode. And yeah, you know, and I was saying what I said on the it's show like, last these guys Sunday. never read guys like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass in their life. It's exactly. Like you got all this knowledge in front of you, you have all of this in front of you, and yet you still choose to tell our children lies openly and they'll have no mm-hmm. choice but to accept it and believe it even when their own black families say that shit exactly. because you have black people actually starting to believe you know that slavery was good for us and that if we weren't right. slaves if we weren't brought over from America if we weren't brought over from Africa to America you know our lives would be shit and look at Africa Africa is a terrible country as if they're not a continent because they get that shit right. wrong too Right, right, right. And that's another thing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I've been ranting about this too. But that's another thing that upsets me is the depiction of Africa as backwards. Yes, yes. That's that's another thing that really deserves attention 
because African immigrants are painted as backwards and needing our, you know, good old American social conditioning. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's offensive, especially as somebody who grew up in the church with African immigrants who came over to America. And the thing is, it's like, these people are not dumb. They don't need your conditioning. They don't need your help. They they know how to act civilized. Do you think that you brought them out of fucking cages when they were in Uganda and Africa? Right. I mean, like, <laughs> like, what do you think is actually going on? How much do you really know about this? How much right, do you but know see, again, about social life? Yes. It's like, how much do you know about these countries that you can just point at Uganda and you can point at Congo and you can point at these places and say, oh, well, this, you know, these guys are really fucked up over here. Well, yeah, sometimes. But then you also have a middle class, you have an upper class, and you have all these sorts of classes in between. And, yes, you have places that are, you know, like Sudan, you know, where mass rapes and genocides are actually taking place. But, number one, I don't see you doing shit about that or talking about right. that. And, second, right. I don't see that being that much different than what happens in America. Granted, it's on a right. way bigger scale in Sudan you don't have actual armies waging warfare against citizens, but you better be careful because you can't say that it can't happen here in America. Exactly. exactly. And see, and that's the thing, and I agree with you wholeheartedly because, you know, you had the people in this country, you know, cheering on Arab Spring, Pink Spring, and, you know, all of those other movements over there. But when it happened here, no, you all are just whiners. And, you know, because you even see other black folks calling, you know, the protesters whiners. And what's funny to me is one person right. in particular who used to say that they're nothing but whiners and complainers. And, and then all of a sudden when it started getting popular to say Black Lives Matter and to be a part of the movement, now they out there going to blackout and things like that. And, and I'm just laughing because they're the main ones calling other folks whiners. And now you're a right. part of it, but see, these other folks are still whiners. Why? Because you don't like them. So if you don't like them, they're a whiner. But if you like them, then, yeah, they're a true warrior. And that's bullshit. And I just right. sit I back say, and, and I, I laugh at Right. And I have no problem with a changed mind. But on the other hand, I, it's just it's just very, very interesting to me um, how how people have to you know, it's like you join things. If you join things because you're you want to be on the bandwagon, then you're in for a real surprise. Because then you're going to be asked why you accepted that. Exactly, and and that's why I'm saying you know what's interesting is I want people to think about this. Pay attention to what has happened this year. How some people who were not into social justice and didn't give a shit about social matters how some of them have miraculously been radicalized, if you will, and now they're trying to say Black Lives Matter a little bit, and a few of them are trying to go out there and be a part of the process. They weren't giving a shit, but then, you know, it was a couple of turn of events earlier this year, so now that the white atheist organizations have given the head nod, then all of a sudden now is a bunch of white folks and black folks and other folks saying Black Lives Matter. Well, it didn't matter to you last August. What happened? Was it because your, you know, 
these mainstream organizations are saying okay and all they're trying to do is capitalize off that movement because it's interesting because you know they'll have you know panels talking about black lives matter have speakers talking about black lives matter and they ain't gave a dime to black lives matter right so they're just capitalizing off of it and i think it's bullshit and you know and i'm just laughing because you know, when you bring this up, you know, they want to say, oh, well, she's just a disgruntled black person and blah, 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 and she's mad. No, I'm looking at this for what it is. Huh? And bitter. And, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like looking out looking out for your own popularity, wanting to disrupt this and that and the other, but it's just like, fine. That, if that's the way you want to think about it, then that's your problem. I'm going to continue to do what I have to do. And you just continue to keep worrying about it until it becomes a problem for you. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what's funny is, you know, you have a lot of black women using that, you know, that particular trope um, with other black Well, she is so angry. <laughs> Why are they so angry? It's like it's not that the person is angry. You know, they may have, you know, righteous passion, if you will. But it's, it's just it's funny because I sit back and I look at this and, you know, kind of, you know, it's a lot of people that do not like this show. They do not like me because of what I I'm saying, and then they can't understand why I don't give a shit. Because, you know, like I said, it's it's an exercise in futility to try to go and talk to some of these people, you know, because it's like this. If you have not read a book, if you have, I mean, you don't even got to read a whole book, just do an internet search, you know, and, and you don't know anything about black people or black history, you'll ask them, you know, have you had this conversation with a black person before? And they'll say, yes, I've discussed it with, you know, some of my quote unquote black friends. Okay, what did they say to you? Oh, I don't really remember. Oh, okay. You know, what what black writers have you read? Oh, I can't think of them off the top of my head. And, you know, but yet they want you to continue to educate them over and over. And like I said last week, it's not that they don't know. They don't fucking want to know. That's that's what right. that is, you know. And right. it's, or, it's just you know, funny because... Or they've been given an answer, have not accepted mm-hmm. that answer, and they're going to keep waiting until they get the answer that they like. Right, and which is why you know you you know which is why they like you know certain tokens of color or clowns out there because they're going to give them the answers that they want because they want something from them. And what's interesting is some of these folks don't even believe half the shit coming out of their mouths. You know, you got people in this community that are out here saying A, B, C, D, and E, don't believe a damn word of it. They're just trying to find a way to capitalize off of it and how to profit from it. And, you know, I'm just sitting back and not... And not to be crude about it either, not to be crude about it either, but um, to me it's also, and, you know, People are going to hate this, that I said it, but it's also about power and pussy. Oh, child, you you know, we don't even have to use the P word, just sex, period. You know, because, like, you know, because, yeah, because, you know, you know, you know, I mean, some some of us like, you know, different flavors, but whatever. But, you know, it's about sex and power. You know, and and you know they want their little groupies, they want their your, the minions, and it's just interesting. And it's not just the black ones; it's the white ones too. Man, you and me, we're gonna have to talk offline because I got some shit I can tell you about. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you 
you know, and I'm laughing because you know I, I've I've you know I've pulled the cover off a few things, and you know to this day I'm still not sorry, and I'm not gonna apologize, and you can still kiss my ass, okay? And so right. you know, and I'm just right. sitting back, and I'm and just it's laughing. Like all these ulter- all these ulterior motives. It's just like, why didn't you tell me you wanted that to begin with instead of disguising it in, you know, I'm with all these social justice issues right now. Mm-hmm. But here's the end game. Mm-hmm. It's like, you you could have just came out and said, here's what I want, bro. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just so funny because, you know, I'm just laughing and I'm looking at it and I'm seeing more people being drawn into the bullshit. You know, some people that I thought was true and blue and on the straight and narrow on some bullshit. And I'm sitting yep. back and I'm looking and I'm like, no, not you too. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's been yeah. an eye opener. And that's the right. reason why I say, and people get mad at me, but atheism as it's being practiced now is a religion. They've turned it into a religion. Now you got these firebrand atheists out here, you know, they get angry with me and they were like, no, atheism means, you know, theism means religion, A means without. Well, yeah, that's what that word means. You know, I'm not changing the definition of that word. I'm not talking about the word. I'm talking about the culture, the culture that's mm. being nurtured and developed over here. Right. It is a right. cult. It is turning into a religion. And they get angry because it's like it's the same old bullshit. Because, you know, these mega pastors, you know, they're nothing but, you know, top of the line master salesmen. And the same right. thing is happening with a lot of these organizations, white and black. They're master salespeople. And yeah. they're selling you bullshit, you know, selling you false hopes, selling you false dreams, selling you all this shit that, you know, they don't necessarily believe in because at the end of the day, they want to make sure that their bottom line is, you know, padded. You know, it's about right. money. It's about popularity. It's about sex. It's about a number of these things. But at the same time, I'm going to tie it into the subject today, throwing, you know, the black community on the, under the bus. And what I mean by that is the majority of believers, you know, especially in the black community, you know, the majority of the black community are believers. And so when you start talking all that bullshit about, you know, particular people, you're committing violence on the black community. And it's like, you know, I've had people get angry because I said that, but it's the absolute truth. And what's funny is there are other people who believe that and know that it to be know for it to be true, but they won't say anything because they want something from this particular benefactor and this particular benefactor, and they want to be associated with this particular person because they think it's going to help them get a higher profile, and that's not necessarily the case because when that shit implodes, I'm going to put everybody – as far as that was part of that, I'm putting them all in the same damn barrel. And what gets me about this community is they're still perpetuating perpetu- ah, perpetuating a lot of bullshit, whereas white people are individuals, but even the black atheists and humanists in this community, we're looked at as a collective. So if they don't like something one black person says, then they want to go and run to all the black people to explain and and to apologize for that person, which is bullshit, you know, and it's just interesting. But, again, that's that anti-blackness, and they don't even realize what the hell they're doing. 
You know, because, I mean, what I thought, we were free thinkers. I'm not going to always see things the same way other folks see it. And, you know, um, and, you know, I had a friend, and me and him, we were talking about it. And he was like, oh, he was like, well, what your problem is is that you're bucking the establishment, and that's why they have such a problem with you, because you won't conform. And I'm like, I've never conformed, ever, in my life. There are some things I conform to, but that's my choice. You know, but it's just funny because it's like when you go against the so-called establishment, now you're a problem. Now you're a troublemaker, even though what you're saying is correct. And you're just sitting, I'm just sitting back, you know, sipping on some oolong tea, you know, with my damn ginger snaps, waiting on the damn implosion because it's going to come. And so I'm just laughing because it's all funny to me at this point. But, yeah, you know, anyway, we all off subject. Yo, inbox me. Inbox me your number, and we'll chat. I will. All right, guys. Well, we're going to close this out. Thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate you guys. Enjoy the, you know, the um, archives. You can get it on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and a whole bunch of other places that I put it. I just can't remember right now, but we're out there. You can find us next Sunday, the 25th, no show. But after that, we're going to start a two-part series. It's called Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. So we're going to take it all the way back to the New Deal, even a little bit before the New Deal, and we're going to bring it up to modern day today and how it's affecting all of us and how a lot of that stuff is you know, starting to crumble. So um, we were talking about something earlier, and we were talking about the housing. So, guys, go and look up redlining. So, you know, if you heard that part and you couldn't quite put it together, look up redlining and the government, you know, because um, the FHA was, you know, the main proponent for, you know, redlining different areas for segregation. Talked about that on another show, and we'll talk about that a little bit more with the New Deal because it's all tied in together. I think I did a show about urban planning. Go and look for that. So all right now, y'all, you take it easy and enjoy your Sunday. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.